Okay, we're live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, the December 19th, 2020 edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Liberation, Black Liberation. Uh, today's conversation, we're joined by a number of friends. Uh, as always, Dr. Anthony Montero, also Nandita, Catherine, Alice, Jake, Michelle, Samir, and Divya. Uh, today, we'll be discussing two pieces. The first, a recent article by Nandita, and then uh, getting into W.E.B. Du Bois's Russia and America. So to start off our discussion on reading of Nantha's article, I'd like to uh, turn it over to Doc for some introductory comments. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, you know, um, I don't wanna to say too much, but I mean, it's obvious that we're shifting back to ideas and theory and philosophy uh, as a way of grounding us for what is to come. And, um, you know, we all already are beginning to see uh, some saber rattling towards Russia with this claim that Russia has hacked into uh, our security and, and other systems, governmental systems. And uh, this is being considered uh, possibly an act of war, which will require retaliation. Um, uh, also, uh, you know, you still have these 74 million people who voted for Trump who are not accepting um, the election as legitimate. So there's a lot going on. Uh, and uh, uh, we are taking not a step back, but uh, a way of uh, broadening our understanding as we go forward. And you know, Nundatha's uh, piece, she'll tell us about it, when she wrote it, when she delivered it, and what she was getting at. And then we'll go to this manuscript, unpublished manuscript uh, by Du Bois called Russia and America and Interpretation. So with that, I'll turn it back to Jahan. Right. Um, so uh, I shared the link to the uh, to Nantha's article as well as to a place where our viewers can download Russia and America in PDF form in the description of uh, the of today's live stream. So um, with that, uh, shall we get into uh, Nantha's article? Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I I had written this as. Uh a presentation for an event in 2018. Uh, the event was titled Pan-Africa, Pan-Asia, A World United for Humanity. And it was an event that was celebrating W.E.B. Du Bois's 150th birth anniversary. Um, and it was for a panel on the Dark Princess. Uh, so it draws a lot from his work. And uh, I guess this is just an understand my understanding of what he envisions for the world. Um, and I, I should say it's in no, no way complete, um, but just, just it's an attempt. <laughs> okay, I'll start reading. Today we face a new world, one ripe with the possibilities of new alliances and unity. The Western world crumbles under its own decadence and 
hypocrisy and decays. Asia rises and Africa begins its struggle once again for its place in the sun. A new epoch is about to begin and the masses that make up humanity ask, on what basis will this world come to rest? Will we repeat the mistakes of the white man and compete for domination? Or can we reinterpret the age old humanism of Muhammad, the Buddha and Jesus for our times to sow the seeds for a more human future? Will we have the courage, wisdom, foresight and humility to take a step forward in the great struggle for human liberation? As Omar Khayyam said, the moving finger writes and having writ moves on, nor all thy piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. The great drama of history unfolds and progressives and peace loving peoples cannot let it proceed without their contribution. And so we must again engage in public discussion and debate. The time is right to once again talk about W.E.B. Du Bois's vision of the unity of the darker nations and a world free from hunger, war, and poverty. True unity is based on principle. What principle must we base the unity of Pan-Africa and Pan-Asia? If our aim is to abolish human suffering, we must start as Du Bois does. We must start with the principle of humanity. There is something incalculable about this principle, the fact that we must love each other. However, we can ask, what does the principle of humanity mean for political practice? What are the assumptions that we must proceed from if we are to see each other as human? I want to suggest that there are three assumptions that can form the basis of building unity going forward. These are in no way complete, but an attempt to envision unity in the future by drawing on W.E.B. Du Bois's body of work. The first assumption is that as human beings, each, of, each one of us inherits history and civilization. This is a crucial part of thinking of someone as human. Africa and Asia have not only been part of world history, but have also shaped it such that an omission of their role would render the story of humanity to complete lie. Mm -hmm. Du Bois wrote The World in Africa because he understood that without a history that put Africa in its proper place in the world, black humanity would not look human to itself or to others. He says in the foreword, since the rise of the sugar empire and the resultant cotton kingdom, there has been a consistent effort to rationalize Negro slavery by omitting Africa from world history, so that today it is almost universally assumed that history can truly be written without reference to Negroid peoples. I believe this to be scientifically unsound and also dangerous for logical social conclusions. Therefore, I am seeking in this book to remind readers in this crisis of civilization of how critical a part Africa has played in human history, past and present, and how, it is, how impossible it is to forget this and rightly explain the present plight of mankind. In, end quote. In contrast, despite his progressive role in Europe, Marx was constrained by white civilization and unable to understand this principle. In his writings on India, he says, quote, Indian society has no history at all, at least no known history. What we call its history is the history of successive conquests that she has undergone, end quote. The inheritance of history and civilization by all human beings also means that we come from traditions of knowledge, of science and art. In America, those who feel to see black America as a civilization 
must deny the blues and jazz or the immense scientific body of knowledge that we call the black radical tradition. As human beings, we inherit the poetry of Rumi, the sorrow songs of Paul Robeson, the philosophy of the Buddha, the complex art form of African masks and Chinese ceramics. Each one of us has history and tradition that we are a part of and that we can draw on to move forward. Art and science takes us to the second assumption. As human beings, we are capable of using science and art to discover the truth. This is very important. It means that common people, all people, have the capacity to be intellectuals and to understand the world. Matthew, the protagonist of The Boyce's Dark Princess, questions, quote, and suppose we found that ability and talent and art is not entirely or even mainly among the reigning aristocrats of Asia and Europe, but buried, but buried among millions of men down in the great sodden masses of men and even in black Africa, end quote. Today, there's a culture of celebrity which leads those with university appointments to suppose that they are the sole and final authorities on knowledge. Any experience with, with academics will show that the experts are the narrowest in their view of the world. Common people dealing with real life problems tend to be broader in their thought and their experiences condition them to the truth. We are told by academics that working people do not have the time or the desire to read. I believe this is utterly false. People strive to understand the world and the purpose of their life. It is human to want to know one's place in the world. The boys understood this deeply. He knew that his relative success in the world was not the product of exceptional will and ability, and that all people were the same in the possibility of infinite de development, but varying in opportunity. He was not above his people, he was of them. In Dark Water, he says, quote, I began to realize how much of what I had called will and ability was sheer luck. Suppose my good mother had preferred a steady income from my child labor rather than bank on precarious dividends of my higher training. Suppose that pompous old village judge whose dignity we often ruffled and whose apples we stole had had his way and sent me while a child to a reform school to learn a trade. Suppose Principal Hosmer had been born with no faith in darkies and instead of giving me Greek and Latin, had taught me carpentry and the making of tin pans. Suppose I had missed a Harvard scholarship. Suppose the Slater board had then as now distinct ideas as to, the, as to where the education of Negroes should stop. Suppose and suppose, as I sat down calmly on flat earth and looked at my life, a certain great fear seized me. Was I the masterful captain or the pawn of, a la of laughing sprites? Who was I to fight a world of color prejudice? I raised my hat to myself when I remember that. Even with these thoughts, I did not hesitate or waver, but just went doggedly to work. And therein lay whatever salvation I had achieved." End quote. We must believe then in the ability of all people to think. The third assumption is that as human beings, we are capable of creating new truths. We have agency and each one of us can take on the task of changing the world through study, imagination, organization, and action. The mass movements from the 60s and 70s were engaged in creating the new truth of a world with peace, material well-being, and spiritual fulfillment. This is what the Panthers were doing with the free breakfast program. Mm -hmm. 
what Gandhi was doing when he led millions of people of India in marching across the nation, what the people of Selma and Martin Luther King did when they marched towards freedom, what the Cuban people achieved when they eradicated illiteracy through the Cuban literacy program, and what the Vietnamese were doing when they fought for self-determination. The masses of people are capable of creating new truth. Those who attack world historic movements in an unprincipled manner are denying this fact. They condemn humanity's attempt to create new reality, which are in effect saying that it is only Europe that is capable of creating a new world. History has shown us that Europe has not operated on these three assumptions of humanity, that all people inherit history and civilization, that all people can achieve truth through science and art, and the masses of people can change the world. Europe has believed that their humanity is superior to the darker peoples and that they are the sole heirs of science and art and the only ones capable of creating it. Europe believed that only their history is history with a capital H, thus deluded and unprincipled. Europe is incapable of leading humanity forward. In fact, in its current form, it is also incapable of being a part of a principled unity of Africa and Asia. For the principle of Europe is the principle of white supremacy itself. Thus the principle of Europe is the very opposite of the principle of humanity. This leads us to conclude that we must build our unity unmediated by whiteness and unmediated by European civilization. Of course, I do not mean to imply that white, ind that white individuals cannot join this alliance. Our unity is open to anyone who follows the principle of humanity. But to do so, you have to renounce the unprincipled of whiteness. We have seen the, the practice of this unmediated principled unity before. In the anti-colonial struggles of the world, in particular in the peace movement, a towering figure in the peace movement is Ramesh Chandra. In a time when the anti-war movement was dominated by liberal whites and university students, he involved the masses of the world in the peace movement. He worked closely with African-American leaders to try to tie the struggle for peace to the struggle for black liberation where it naturally belongs. Romesh Chandra stands as a model for us today of how to build pan-African, pan-Asian unity. He said in a speech in 1978, what we, are pledging to do, what we are pledging ourselves to do is that we shall not rest until we achieve what the boys aim to do, what Paul Robeson aimed to do, what all the great leaders of the liberation struggles in every part of the world are aiming to do. We are going to create the kind of world in which no child will be burnt by napalm. No child will go hungry. No child will be thrown into the ghetto and all children will know what a sweet tastes like." End quote. To end, I want to re revisit the concept of truth. The boy spent his life in search of the truth. In 1956, he wrote a letter to Herbert Aptheker in which he expressed, quote, I assumed that truth was only partially known, but that it was ultimately largely knowable, although perhaps in part forever unknowable, end quote. It is the nature of experience that as individuals, we can see partial truth. Similarly, on the global scale, we are able to see clearly parts of the truth, parts of the whole global system. 
the world looks very different from India than it does from Black America, despite a particular com a peculiar commonality. The positioning of Black America in the belly of empire means that it has clarity and analysis of empire that perhaps no other group in the world does. White American and European thought affects everyone else, whether in the realm of popular culture, academic thought, or even leftist politics. However, as Du Bois says in the souls, about the souls of white folk, quote, I see in and through them. I view them from unusual points of vantage, not as a foreigner, not as a foreigner do I come, for I am native, not foreign, bone of their thought and flesh of their language, end quote. Without this view of the truth and understanding of the color line, the rest of the world cannot build an effective movement for freedom. But together, collectively, we can achieve the whole truth through love and science. As Du Bois says, quote, I firmly believe that gradually the human mind and absolute and provable truths would approach each other like the asymptotes of a hyperbola, end quote. As we climb to higher and higher stages of unity, we move closer to the truth. And thus the unity of Pan-Africa and Pan-Asia will serve the truth and the truth will serve humanity. Thank you. Oh, I just, I also wanted to say that the part where I was talking about um, academics, um, I, I remember writing that and I think it was in response to uh, the process we underwent to organize the Year of the Boys, because we were trying to have reading groups on university campuses, and we were told repeatedly by academics that, you know, that ordinary people didn't have the time to read, didn't have the desire to read, um, and ultimately all the reading groups for the Year of the Boys were everywhere except the universities in some sense. Yeah. I remember uh, when you gave that presentation, it was at Mother Bethel, if, I, if I'm correct, is that? I think it was at the Church of the Advocate, though. Oh, oh okay. I, you remember the one you gave at Mother Bethel? Yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, oh, I just wanted to mention one thing, which is my on my end, my internet is being a bit spotty, so I apologize if I freeze or something. But the people are telling me that the live stream is fine, so we don't have to worry about that. Uh, but you know, uh, to get the conversation, uh, the discussion on this reading um, started, of course, we're looking forward to viewers' comments. But I also I wanted to ask a question, maybe it would be helpful for other people also um more of a technical point but at the end uh the quote from Du Bois I firmly believe that gradually the human mind and absolute and provable truths will approach each other like the asymptotes of a hyperbola maybe as the science person you could explain a little bit about the asymptotes of a hyperbola what exactly that what is he what image is he invoking in terms of the truth I think he's trying to say that uh the two approach each other uh, and become infinitely close, uh, but never meet. There is something, there's some part of truth that is ultimately unknowable to human beings. Mm -hmm. We can become closer and closer and closer to the truth, mm -hmm. through struggle, I guess. 
Yeah. Actually, my point was also about that and slash um, question comment. Uh, was the asymptotic function? Um, I was thinking of something that Leo Tolstoy said, and Tolstoy, of course, was such an important influence on Gandhiji. Um, he says in the kingdom of God is within, and this goes back, I think, to a lot of what you were saying in uh, what you were saying about civilizations and that, you know, it can't just come from what the, what we think a scientific in the sense of what we think science is, is it is even in flux at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, scientific sense of uh, what the economy is. Well, what is the economy, but the composite of human motive and desire, I think is what Gandhiji ultimately concluded. And what Tolstoy says here is divine perfection is the asymptote of the human life mm. toward which it always tends and approaches and which can be attained by it only at infinity. And I brought up Tolstoy because theoretically he's kind of uh, in the in the Russian Revolution, like he wasn't fully accepted in the, initially anyway. But I think eventually he was, you know, uh, things were fine, and he, um, you know, died peacefully, mm -hmm. as far as I know. Um, but there is a sense of this question of God that I think even uh, communists have to deal with. Um, which um, Tolstoy has a whole piece on, you know, why we can't say that God is not real for the people. Um, it becomes a problem. Of course, we can't conflate religion and social matters, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, society itself cannot impose itself on religion mm -hmm. because that will be a problem for reaching you know i mean because as gandhiji said the economic is um the spiritual for most um you know prayers are about you know you're more than your body but at the same time you're trying to understand you know, where is my next meal coming from? You know, you pray to God, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you pray to God. God is what keeps your, you know, keeps it all together for you, so to speak. Um, so I just thought of that when I, when I was listening to you about the, the asymptotic. Mm -hmm. It is, I mean, it's ultimately leading to the same idea of truth, but I think, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm you know, the question of the divine is where, how Tolstoy gets to it. Um, whereas, I mean, it's so Du Bois is so interesting because you can never really know his, uh, his uh, relationship. Well, you do, you, I, I think ultimately he does have a faith in, in a higher being because he, he wouldn't be able to get to this idea of incalculability. Mm -hmm beyond this positivism. Anyway, those were my thoughts. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
I mean, one of the important points in this article is this point, uh, as you mentioned, of the role of science and art in service of the truth. And I'm struck by it because, as we've been discussing here for some time, we're in it with this current situation with COVID-19 pandemic, with uh, this questions over the vaccine, questions over the lockdown and the, gut, the state's response. All of that shows us that we're in a time in which uh, science is itself, our understanding of science uh, that we've been taught in the society is itself in a crisis. Um, and in, probably we could identify ways in which art is in crisis as well, but particularly in this moment, at this point about science being in crisis and the need to rethink science uh, in service of something else uh, rather than what it has served uh, in this civilization so far, something that is uh, definitely striking in this piece for the, the situation we're in now. So I, I wanted to ask uh, uh, Nanta or Doc or others about how you would you know, see that relationship. Yeah, I, I think, um, and it's in this um, uh, unpublished manuscript, Russia, and America, um, which is <laughs> anybody that reads it, you you know you see how complex, as Divya was mentioning, how complex um, Du Bois's thinking is. Uh, but um, he, and of course, he is um, uh, particularly interested in social science and sociology. And in fact, he saw the Russian Revolution as creating conditions uh, for sociology to take place for real because of the planned nature of, um, of a socialist uh, society. But the thing that, that I think is so intriguing is, and this probably brings Tolstoy and Du Bois together that the struggle to know, the struggle for the truth is an infinite struggle. It's a never, we never complete it. Therefore, Du Bois, and I don't know about, I don't know if this is true with, um, with Tolstoy as well. Du Bois was not anti-religion, he was anti-dogma, um, where uh, one religion or one person or one group of people claim to know the truth. And that, that, that doesn't only apply uh, to, to religions, it applies to even secular societies where certain celebrities and uh, uh, intellectuals are set up as knowing it all, or that science supersedes humanity. Um, so yeah, I, I find that so, I find Du Bois's method, uh, his approach, his openness uh, to the possibilities of knowing without, you know, at the same time becoming cynical and nihilistic and pessimistic about knowing uh, and hence about humanity and liberation. Uh, I guess that's, that's what Nandatha, what I get from her presentation 
is that um, knowledge and truth are important because they um, are central to the liberation, especially as, uh, as none of the darker races. It is, you know, that, I'll just stop there. Yeah, that's where I would uh, put it. Yeah, I wanted to say that on that point. I think I think down to your formulation at the end of um, at the end of your piece about how individuals can see naturally partial truths about the world, but that unity, like the striving for unity, is so important because only only through the unity of people positioned differently in the world can you achieve the full truth. Which, like you said, Doc, um, like holds the potential for the liberation of humanity. I think this is a very, very clarifying, um, it's a really clarifying and important point because, you know, I think we live in a time when people are so eager to take, at least the people that I see oftentimes, to take their individual truth and prescribe it as the truth of the world, um, which is very, which is very arrogant in a sense because you're basically neglecting um, like the worldview of like the dark masses of the world, as well as like all of the different people within this society. And yeah, I think it just really makes sense for, um, for understanding this concept of unity or why it's so important or why um, as young people, we go back to the struggle of black America to understand the most, um, the most fundamental contradictions of American empire and um, and the color line across the world. Um, I don't know if I made my point clear enough, but <laughs> I think I was just really struck by this formulation. You know that there's there are partial truths, but what we really have to strive for is the complete truth, and this is something that you cannot accomplish on your own. Like you need to be a part of a collective, or you need to build like you need to build principled unity and able to see that full picture. And if you can't see it, then like you can't fight for what's completely right, you know? Um, and then I also wanted to say, I was really struck by what you said regarding how when during the year of Du Bois, when the Saturday Free School hosted reading groups across the city, so many working people came, but that the reading group hosted at the University of Pennsylvania was maybe the one that was the most difficult to um, to have committed members at, you know, like you might have expected the students to come, but um, quite the opposite. Like it was difficult for the students to make that commitment, and I think it just speaks to how how this spirit of the love of knowing, you know, for the truth, and um, yeah, the love of using knowledge to uplift and to fight for like a better future is is really lost um, in these academic institutions today. But that's why, you know, going back to this legacy of Du Bois is so important. And um, it made me think of this quote from Russia and America, which I know we're going to read in a little bit, but on the second page of it, he write, Du Bois writes, one thing, However, that course of study did was to open vistas and resolves. I was going to know truth. I was going to stop at no little college for colored folk in Tennessee. I was going to seek the best and largest institutions in the world until I knew what life was and why. And um, yeah, it's just really beautiful. And 
I, I know for me personally, it's, you know, it's, it's being a part of this collective and finding Du Bois that, you know, rekindled that love of, um, yeah, that, that gave me the ability to want to use knowledge and want to use study and history to, to understand life and to fight for the truth. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really important piece for our time. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to add um, uh, to what, in return to what Doc had said, in that Du Bois was not anti-religion, but was anti-dogma. Um, and specifically, that was because that um, with dogma, there is a claim that a certain group knows the truth. Um, this is contrasted with what Nanita refers to throughout her article, but also um, what all, uh, Du Bois also speaks to in the first chapter, which is the opposite, which is that truth and science and art can come from the masses of the people and it, that it does come from the masses of people. Um, and as we talk about truth there, I think this is what you were speaking to Michelle, um, which is that it's only with a truth that comes from the masses of people that unites the masses of people that actually a group um, can strive for an all, like a better future or get closer to the truth. Um, and I think that informs all of the work that we're trying to do. We're not trying to say like, we're the ones who know like the absolute or the absolute truth um, and that no one else knows, but actually we're trying to understand what the masses of people are thinking and we're striving for. Um, so I agreed with you, Michelle. Uh, both, I think even Nanita's article sets up a really good discussion uh, for us in talking about Russia and America. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about the, the point about unity. Um, and it's so interesting because I'm thinking about like, or Romesh Chandra's, um, what he said about, you know, um, or, or, you know, the, you know, you know, like this type of like unity um, for sacrifice, so like the children can have sweets, you know what I'm saying? And I think about it, it made me think of like the world house, you know, that concept by, uh, you know, by King um, and how like important, like a, a type of unity is for the children. I was thinking of like, okay, well, you know, if, if in a family, you know, if the father goes off and he, he spends money, you know, drinking and he doesn't have money to, or he doesn't have, um, you know, the resources to provide for his um, uh, family, then, you know, the children loses out if he doesn't uh, make these types of sacrifices. You know what I'm saying? So if a Joe Biden, for example, um, you know, he uh, abuses the, I mean, which he does abuse the, uh, the uh, goodwill and the, uh, the, yeah, it plays on these types of weakness or weaknesses that they, um, you know, they put in or, or that they, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if, if he, if he, um, uh, yeah, abuses the uh, power or the, his powers, you know, and he tries and he takes, um, you know, abuses the goodwill of the American people. Um, and he doesn't, and you know, he doesn't sacrifice. Then that house types or continues to collapse. There's a, t a continuing a collapse, um, and it's just, it just, it's just so important. I think that or unity is so important. I mean, uh, across the color line for the children, because children are still being raised in the ghetto. Children are still being raised in um, in uh, intolerable conditions, um, and you know, without a type of unity, without a, a un or a type of uh, a way to uh, or struggling together against the man, against um, 
against uh, poverty, against racism, war, then they'll continue to not have the sweets that they deserve to have, not have the, the education that they deserve to have, not to have the, um, the, the life that they deserve to have. You know what I'm saying? So unity is just is so important, um, you know, for the uplift of man. And, you know, I think, and it's important, I mean, it's so interesting, you know, it's only through uh, together that we find that type of truth. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I like the thing about assumptions as well in terms of history. I mean, if you assume people can't think and if you assume people don't have a type of history or don't have, which is really assuming that they don't have a life, you don't have to engage with them. You don't have to talk to them on the street. You don't have to talk, you don't have to look at them. And so if you assume black people don't have like uh, any type of history, or if you assume that, you know, there, there is no, or there's no history to Africa, there's no history to Asia, you don't have to um, know anybody outside of their uh, use to, to you. Um, and if, and if you don't, and if you assume that they're, um, that they're not um, real in that way, if they don't have history, um, then, they, then in, in a lot of, and we see this, you're, you, you, don't, um, you don't talk to them, you don't um, uh, know them. And when you don't know them, you, you, uh, you allow that, you know, you perpetuate a type of genocide, you know, you perpetuate, you know, the strangling in the ghetto, you perpetuate the, um, the destruction of the Middle East, you perpetuate uh, the idea that China is the, the menace, the, the um, you know, you perpetuate these ideas that, you know, uh, you can just do whatever you want um, at the cost of the children, at the cost of the lives of children. Um. You know, um... I was struck by uh, Du Bois's uh, introspection about who he was and how he came to be and the struggle that he engaged in. Uh, and he said it was the opportunity uh, that, uh, and all of these people who provided that opportunity to him, it's kind of existential in fact. Um, but it struck me because it, it, it speaks to the fact that, uh, when we broaden our uh, uh, engagement with people and peoples around the world, we also broaden our understanding. And I know that in my experience and Tony's too, the, in the course of, of, of reading and also engaging with people from various struggles, we began to understand their struggles as similar to our struggles and why there was this inherent unity uh, uh, among the dark uh, peoples of the world. And that that unity also extended to some of the struggling white people of the world who are equally oppressed like in Northern Ireland. And so in the anti-apartheid work that we did, uh, we became familiar with the people of Africa, uh, Latin America, the Middle East, and we became familiar with the struggles that their communities were having, which were very similar to ours. And it was a, a, it was a broadening experience and it, it, it helped us to understand certain truths about humanity and to love and embrace humanity. And I think Nandatha, you captured that in, in this piece and I appreciate what you wrote. I actually wanted to go back to, um, um, I think Michelle, no, um, Alice had said about, well, Doc has also said about dogma and religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember, I think it was a few free schools ago, um, we had read some part of Galileo Galilei and Doc had made a comparison between the Christian church 
in that essay and the American University today. Um, and you know, this thing of experts and the experts who know mm -hmm. you have to believe. And if you don't believe them, you're stupid. Um, I think it's really something to be, to be thought about today, especially with this vaccine um, and how it's being pushed on everyone without any trials or anything. But you know, because they're experts, we're supposed to believe everything they say. Um, and nobody else can question anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm also going off of what Catherine said, uh, struck by this point uh, that I think in this essay, what's identified as the basis for unity is a, is a commitment to the truth. And the fact that unity and truth are very much connected uh, as an understanding of what principled unity should look like. And I think that's very important because that's very different from what's often proposed as a basis for unity when we talk about interest, group politics, self-interest as the basis of unity. This is a very different kind of uh, model for unity. Um, that's one thing I'm struck by. But also bringing in some uh, comments. Uh, Meghna writes, uh, part of what is striking about Nantha's article is that it uses Du Bois's work to develop common principles upon which humanity must unite, and that it points out how European society is united around the principle of white supremacy, which is anti-humanity. Academics point out the danger of universals to deconstruct any and all movements for freedom, but denying that darker people don't have universal principles and don't strive for unity is a form of racism. Uh, Ilana Jones writes, this conversation has me thinking about something I've been wondering for a while as a scientist in training. I think epistemology, the process of knowing slash discovering truth comes with responsibility. However, in my experience talking to other scientists and my own early self-reflection of what it means to be a scientist, pursuit of truth is a noble endeavor that is an end to itself and exists within a vacuum devoid of responsibility. I feel that in Western science, this ideal of pursuit of truth being an end to itself, a noble pursuit of truth serves white supremacy. I and other scientists discover knowledge and pass on that knowledge to the world without any warning or forethought as to how that knowledge or what that knowledge might bring about or be used for. The role the scientist plays is that of support of the current order and current power. It fuels innovation in the tech world and innovation in the military. But scientists don't take any responsibility for these applications unless it brings about some form of fame. The selective owning of responsibility leads to unfettered pursuit of scientific truth, completely uncoupled from the consequences of reality. Did you uh, want to respond to the point about the scientists? Yeah. Okay. Ilana or Doc? No, no, you got, I mean, I, I was going to say something, but I'll wait. <laughs> oh, Samir, are you trying to say something? I think you're oh, muted. Sorry, I was double muted. I'm muted on the headset too. 
Okay. Uh, but I wanted to respond to both the comments at the same time. And I like the way Nandita brings it up uh, in her piece where working people can also contribute to the pursuit of truth through their art. Um, and what these academics and what these technologists don't understand, scientists don't understand is that, uh, you know, truth comes from working people. And what does it mean? You know, what does the truth that you produce mean if it doesn't matter to working people? Um, I also think that Mao Zedong speaks a lot about, um, you know, being in the vanguard and what your relationship means to the people. And it means uh, guiding the people, not, uh, you know, being a barrier in their way or speaking down to them. And uh, when academics from Penn tell working people or tell us that, you know, working people don't want to read Du Bois, and then we go around and, you know, prove them wrong, uh, there needs to be some sort of scientific discourse about that, about the disconnect. I also think, Jahan, what you said about the pandemic and, okay, Western science can produce a vaccine, but it can't build the trust to distribute it. And now in this crisis, that's going to be a huge problem. And uh, we'll see. You know, um, sorry, I was just uh, trying to find the um, the document Russia and America I lost it somehow. But um, you know, uh, could I just quote uh, from um, something that Nundatha mentioned, and that is uh, Du Bois's essay entitled uh, "Galileo Galilei." Um, which uh, is the uh, text of a speech that he gave in 1908 uh, at Fisk University's uh, commencement exercise. And he was the, uh, the speaker, the key speaker at that. It was also the 20th anniversary of his graduation from Fisk. Uh, just so people will know, uh, Du Bois's first degree was from the historically black college in Nashville, Tennessee, Fisk University. Uh, Fisk University was set up during the reconstruction period. Um, and he would go from Fisk to Harvard and then to the University of Berlin and then back to Harvard to complete his uh, PhD. Um, uh, and they, by the way, just some, um, contextualization, you know, when he uh, was admitted to do graduate work at Harvard, they said, we admit you, but you have to redo your undergraduate degree uh, because we don't accept fully what you, um, the degree that you got from Fisk. Uh, and he would always say he was, um, uh, well, he would always say he was at Harvard, he was not of Harvard, but he said also that, um, uh, that the professors at, at Fisk were just as good as the ones at Harvard, but not as well known. Uh, having gone to a historically black college myself, I always felt that uh, whatever uh, happened to me going forward in academic or intellectual life, I, uh, I give a great deal of credit to Lincoln University. Uh, 
But, uh, but so, so Du Bois is invited back in 1908 to give this speech. And he, he centers the speech on Galileo, uh, the, um, the 16th century scientist, Italian, who had discovered, made the discovery that it was not the uh, galaxy that uh, uh, revolved around the earth, it was the opposite. In the solar system, the sun was the center, but that went against church doctrine. Uh, and in effect, what Galileo was doing by that discovery is dislodging the church, which was an oppressive institution at that time, uh, from the center of knowledge. And he was in effect saying that we can know through science. But then Du Bois would uh, attack Galileo, who in his uh, later part of his life, when the church stepped to him and said, we want you to renounce this heretical doctrine, he did it. And Du Bois uh, said uh, that that cowardice uh, on the part of Galileo forever tarnished or smeared his legacy. But then at one point he says, and this is very apropos to what, what Ilana was saying. And this is, I'm, I'm just gonna quote him. He says, this is Du Bois. Science is a great and worthy mistress, but there is one greater and that is humanity, which science serves. One thing there is greater than knowledge, and that is the man who knows. In the midst then of society, whose lifeblood is faith, and in the name of science, which will know the truth, that the truth may make it free, the verdict of civilization must be that not even the splendor of the service of truth done by Galileo Galilei can wipe away the blot of his cowardly lie. Um, of course, there's a lot there, but this idea that the scientist stands above humanity uh, and that science stands above um, humanity uh, is uh, the very opposite of what goes on today in these universities. And they have become almost like the oppressive church was back in, in the uh, medieval period in Europe. Um, so, uh, um, you know, like Alana was saying, Du Bois's argument is that, the, that science and the scientist uh, are morally obligated to stand up for truth. In fact, in a lot of ways, uh, the real intellectual and the real scientist is a uh, revolutionary uh, by the nature of the fact that truth becomes a weapon against those who would oppress humanity. Yeah, it's a, I, it's interesting. The thing about truth, uh, recently Serge or I, uh, Serafina showed me a, a King quote um, that in in I think it is uh, Creative Maladjustment, his speech. He says, um, uh, "Fact is the uh, absence of or absence of contradiction, 
and a truth is the presence of coherence. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, we see the, the incoherence of the, of the society that we're living in. You know, I, I work downtown, uh, I have to stand around all day and um, uh, right, right in Dilworth Park. Um, and you can see these, all, all these like, you know, uh, ornate sort of, you know, the, the winter garden, all that. But then you see like constantly like a homeless person walk through, you know, and then, then there's like an incoherence. You know what I'm saying? This doesn't, this is, this isn't, this doesn't make sense. If, I mean, if this society is so prosperous, why is this homeless person, you know, standing, standing out here like this, for example, you know what I'm saying? Or you could drive from, you know, Temple University, you know what I'm saying? And go like th to five blocks over into, you know, North Philly. Um, and then, you know, all the houses, there's, they start to be, uh, or they start to look at, or you start to see the houses and they, you know, they're absolutely like, um, you know, you know, they're not as, um, uh, they're, they're, they're shabby. They're not, um, you know, uh, well, or, you know, there, there hasn't been a type of, or any, um, yeah, no care placed into the, the creation of, you know, these houses. And, and then there's this incoherence. Okay, well, why are these houses looking, or why are these houses in, in North Philly looking like this? And then you have these, um, and I don't think they're very beautiful, but you have these gentrified houses, you know, in um, it, where, where Temple is, you know what I'm saying? So there's a deep incoherence. And that's why, that's why the truth becomes then a weapon uh, for the revolutionary, because you see, okay, well, here, here in the ghetto, you know, uh, you perpetuated poverty, and, and here you perpetuated, um, you know, uh, extreme materialism, you know what I'm saying? Um, and that, and that's just the truth of the situation. And then on that basis, you know, there is a revolutionary change that must take place, you know. Um. Yeah, I think that's where, Jake, what you were saying, uh, reminded me of Satyagraha, um, insistence upon the truth, holding firmly to the truth um, because there's so much illusion around us. Um, and, you know, I want to just, there's, there's been a lot of, you know, there's this sense of the oppressor and the oppressed in every struggle, but at the same time, you know, I think Baldwin said it so beautifully, which was that we both share the same reality. And um, whether they want to or not, they have to, the other side is also what we call humanity. It's a big abstraction sometimes. You know, everything is, oh, human rights, human this, today's the world of the quote human, the Anthropocene as they call it. Um, but, and yet, you know, where is this compassion? Where is this, uh, this heart quality that we look for when we seek, I believe anyway, uh, God in one another? Um, and, you know, it reminds me of what Gandhiji said um, somewhere. He said, the rich should ponder well as to what their duty is today. They who employ mercenaries to guard their wealth may find those very guardians. Against turning on them. The, for those who follow the latter way, the best and most effective mantra is 
tyen tyaktein bhunjita bhunjitaha enjoy the wealth by renouncing it expanded it means earn your crores by all means but understand that your wealth is not yours it belongs to the people take what you require for your legitimate needs and use the remainder for society I think Divya really uh, changed the way I think about Baldwin when she said, uh, you know, we both share the same reality. It changed the way I think of, you know, the subjective and material, uh, especially, you know, when I think about when Baldwin said, uh, you know, how can I believe you when I see what you do? And it reminds me of, uh, you know, Temple and University of Pennsylvania and uh, Johns Hopkins, you know, for example, Johns Hopkins. Uh, its greatest, uh, one of its greatest scientific discoveries was the HeLa cell, and they took that without permission from the uh, uterus of a black woman named Henrietta Lacks, and uh, her family to this day is, uh, you know, born from the South in Maryland. Um, and then I think about Temple and all the gentrification, uh, or Penn and the gentrification, and how they're the biggest employers in their respective parts of the city. Um, and how, um, yeah, you know, how Penn consists, calls itself a sanctuary city, but uh, there is no sanctuary for the people it displaces. Um, a comment from Jeremiah Kim. He writes, uh, regarding Jahan's point about the notion of interest-based unity, I came across an article recently in Foreign Affairs that discussed the end of the Wilsonian era of a global rules-based order that Woodrow Wilson envisioned after World War I. The author acknowledges that this system emerged from the European experience, which is actually an aberration in the history of humanity. He writes, Quote, in human history as a whole, enduring civilizational states seem more typical than the European pattern of rivalry among peer states, end quote. The author uses the example of China, Japan, Korea, which only began to engage in escalating war slash continuous competition in the 19th century after the intrusion of the West. We assume growing up in the West that the only kind of unity that is possible is an unprincipled one of individual selfishness. The natural logic of humanity, which Nantha writes about so beautifully, points to another kind of unity built on shared civilizational values geared toward common uplift. And uh, yeah, adding on to that a bit, I also took a look at that article. It was quite interesting. Um, and I mean, as we've been speaking uh, in previous free schools this month, uh, the kind of situation we're in is one of a great crisis, civilizational crisis, as it were, uh, of the West. And the future of the world is not clear where, which direction the world order will go. Certainly, it's clear that the West will no longer be able to dominate it. But I think uh, part of what we're trying to do is present this alternative. And I think, as Nanta argued in the article, part of uh, of the unity that has to be coming moving forward is uh, has to be a unity based on this collective history 
but also commitment um, to the truth. And I think certainly the path to peace, as we've been saying, or positive peace is through this uh, unity of these different, uh, if, if these new powers adopt this kind of model and, and push their own policies towards it, uh, you know, that will provide the basis for uh, a positive peace. And, and I think that's a very essential part of the uh, struggle facing us. And um, as Samir and others have just been saying, even in within this society, uh, both outside externally in the world and within this society, this is uh, the, the, one of the major tasks in front of us. politics with principle rather than self-interest-based politics. You know, um, I guess as we move towards the, um, uh, the first chapter of uh, Russia and America, um, you know, one of the things that I've never been fully able to understand is the deep animus and dislike, even hatred for Du Bois. Uh, obviously, um, those who are responsible for constructing this post-World War II uh, system, which put the United States and then Europe in a dominant uh, position vis-a-vis -vis the darker nations or civilizations of the world, well, obviously they're gonna hate Du Bois. Uh, part of the reason this that we're, we're gonna read is an unpublished manuscript, although it is brilliant as literature and as social science, is because it's completed in 1950. Du Bois is under attack. Uh, he will be arrested. He will be charged with being an agent of a foreign government. That was the McCarthy period. He stood up for his principles uh, uh, nonetheless. Uh, when they accused him of being an agent of a foreign government, he said, I'm not an agent of any government. I'm an agent of peace, you know, uh, and on and on and on. He was this um, uh, unbelievable uh, principled man. So the ruling class, had an interest in silencing him. And for the next uh, 40 or 50 years, his name could hardly be mentioned without severe attacks upon him. Uh, uh, and it was only with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the world, or uh, well, the socialist system in Europe and the world communist movement that then it becomes a little more permissible to mention Du Bois, but then he is undercut, he is distorted, he is trivialized. Uh, and then we get all of these movements like today in this postmodern uh, framework of universities and, and uh, intelligentsia. Well, Du Bois is old hat, he was a misogynist. He didn't understand transgenderism. He was not, uh, he was homophobic. All of these claims, uh, none of which are verifiable. And, um, and then of course, uh, a trend in the black movement, which really 
uh, bothers me and has bothered me for a long time. Uh, the great intellectual, I mean, a force of nature, if you want to put it that way, in terms of ideas. And Black people disown Du Bois on what grounds? You know, uh, it is. Um, um, it is shameful, and I'm speaking as a Black person, for Black intellectuals and politicians to disown Du Bois, to trivialize Du Bois. You see what I'm saying? Uh, many of them do this in the name of Black liberation. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, some current writers uh, who must be considered uh, insane make the claim that Du Bois himself was a racist, uh, as was Frederick Douglass. But, you know, it's that type of, um, of discussion. And in fact, that um, this type of discourse is given the seal of approval by the universities, by African-American studies, uh, where Du Bois is not really studied and taught as he should be. Uh, nowhere to be found in most public schools. So uh, to even elevate Du Bois in the ways that we did and you know the year of Du Bois and there was support. I mean, WURD and I really give them all the credit in the world for allowing Du Bois to be read once a week. Um, uh, it was, you know, Sarah Lomax, I mean, it was unbelievable to allow that to happen. I don't know that that had ever happened anywhere in the United States over the last 50 years. Uh, but people were interested in Du Bois. They were very interested in Du Bois. However, the elites have always seen Du Bois as a threat to their power, which confirms what he has always said that uh, humanity and truth are threats to systems based upon dogma and, uh, and hierarchy, et cetera. Uh, I, I just, you know, yeah, that's what I would say. It is, I mean, it, I can't tell you how much it bothers me. Um, and then of course, Du Bois's, and we'll see in, in the text that we're gonna get into, uh, du Bois's defense of the Russian Revolution uh, at a time when the United States was saying, the United States government was saying anybody that's associated with, um, uh, with the Soviet Union is an enemy of the United States, where in three years out from when Du Bois finished this uh, manuscript, uh, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed on the same day, moments apart, for being so-called agents of the Soviet Union, uh, and on and on and on, uh, Du Bois stood up. And that's the example that we need. But he stood up for principle, and he stood up as a principled person. Uh, so yeah, that's...
uh, speaking of this point of politics of humanity and truth versus the politics of self-interest, yes. Du Bois was basically targeted because he chose in that crucial moment of politics of truth and humanity, even though it may have been in his narrow self-interest or others, other, uh, you know, uh, civil rights leaders would argue maybe it was in the interest of the black community self-interest to not oppose the cold war and not take these principled stands but he went against that consensus similarly with martin luther king you know some years later uh and that's why we hold them up so much is despite all the pressures on them despite the fact that it would have been much easier to take a different decision they stood up uh, on this principle and, and definitely this book uh, which we're going to read is a very, very significant book because it was so dangerous for him to write it. It's difficult, I think, for us. Maybe not, maybe the period, but almost we've been discussing how we're entering a neo-McCarthyist period, but as you put it into context, at this point when people were being executed for being connected to the Soviet Union, for him to write this, and not just write it, but travel there, speak out, oppose the Cold War, oppose the nuclear weapons buildup, all of that was so courageous for, I mean, speaking of science in service of truth as a scientist a social scientist to take these positions um yeah and and you know something joe there are no examples of anything coming close to that today mm -hmm. and certainly uh coming out of the elite universities there won't be there won't be and then when you think of du bois uh uh you know, his uh, stellar academic career, both Fisk and Harvard and the University of Berlin, uh, but he was never invited to teach at, the uh, at Harvard University. Mm -hmm. uh, his dissertation was the first in the Harvard historical series of books, but he was never invited to teach there. Uh, first because of his blackness, but ultimately because he was a radical critical thinker for whom the truth trumped and overrode other considerations. He was not a transactional uh, uh, moral thinker. That's why in the end, uh, his friend William James, uh, one of the founders of modern American pragmatism, uh, his concept of the relativity of truth uh, was not, did not fit Du Bois's moral grounding um and it's you know he's he's that example he is that example um you know everything else is kind of um or most else is kind of very uh, uh small compared to this huge figure i also wanted to say that um I think Du Bois has a special relevance to this time because we're really living in a kind of world historic time in which things are really shifting. Yeah. And uh, I also think that he's a universal thinker. You know, he, he has relevance for all people. And um, I think a lot of times people try to pigeonhole him. They try to say, okay, he's, He's, you know, African-American studies. We're not going to read him in philosophy or we're not going to read him in sociology. We're going to do Weber. We're going to do Hegel, but we won't do Du Bois. Um, and I think like Doc is saying, that is a racism, but also just that he's so challenging and so profound. Um, and 
and i think he has to be read as a as a foundational thinker for this time mm-hmm. uh, and not be pigeonholed in any way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and you know we should anybody that thinks that you can be a radical and not know du bois or be anti du bois um you know i'd like to uh uh disabuse you of that crazy notion i mean you know it's an argument to be made uh, i think this is where you're going with this nandatha that for the 20th century and and certainly the 21st century there is no radicalism that does not include du bois i don't see how you do it i just don't see how you do it i think it is a distortion it is a capitulation to white supremacist notions you know let me just say if i might just say this you know i wrote an article called vi lenin and web du bois class struggle and civilization and um you know i said that lenin uh in in his final days of his life in those days where they're trying to consolidate the revolution in russia and defend it that in the end lenin was closer in his politics of the class struggle etc 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 closer to du bois than he was to trotsky or rosa luxemburg oh why did i say that how dare you say that lenin a revolutionary icon was closer to an african american who he did not know than he was to trotsky who he did know and to rosa luxemburg whom he did know as well this it was like i committed the crime of crimes you know i'm being canceled all over the place for various things this was another reason boom cancel that negro and <laughs> this canceling thing is a crazy thing. but but unless we understand du bois as you know like nandatha said this historic world historic figure and thinker we can't understand this epoch and we can't understand a radical alternative to the epoch of europe uh as we move towards a new global configuration of humanity just to add i also think that he's a he's not only a fundamental thinker but he's also somebody who's organic to the struggle of darker peoples yes no question I mean you can contrast that to someone like Marx for example. Mm-hmm. Um you know he's also I don't think Marx is you know trivial I think he is he is also a profound thinker but to try and apply Marx <laughs> to India when he says that India has no history um I think is a contradiction that many people have tried to resolve but it has been very very difficult. Um and I think in contrast someone like Du Bois or even Baldwin um they yeah they're organic they're organic to the to the majority of humanity see and this is where lenin becomes important you know because as we'll see as we get through this uh, text and i hope we get through a lot of it because it's very very instructive 
um, you know, when, when the Bolsheviks and Lenin uh, seized power in Russia, they hadn't worked all of these details out. They didn't know in their beleaguered state attacked by all sides, do they go west or do they go east? You know what I'm saying? Lenin ultimately had to make a civilizational choice, which sounds something like the article that Jeremiah Kim was talking about, that civilization is important. And India and Asia became for Lenin a living choice of move, moving forward, that communism and socialism would not could not rely upon the West uh, to defend it. And, um, and Du Bois had already concluded this uh, a couple of decades earlier. Uh, so this kind of, uh, and, and then of course, like you say, Du Bois' emphasis upon civilization, which we hear more talk about today, um, and of course, if you discount Indian civilization, uh, and, and if you do that today, uh, I mean, you, you're ruling out what? Um, uh, one fourth of the human race and one of the more ancient civilizations. It's, um, yeah. Um, just a quick point about, um... You know, it strikes me in historiography, um, even Marxism uh, has become dogma. Yeah. In the 20th, in the 20th century, especially following the new left uh, movement, um, which is so amorphous and um, has several points of confusion about civilization and its quote discontents as Freud puts it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you have Marcusa, of course. But um, there's a uh, obscurantism mm -hmm. about what are the origins of discontent in, I think, uh, in, I think this uh, new left, uh, mm -hmm paradigm which you know it it really is uh, against the people as we have discovered um and what is refreshing about du bois um is you know he is of course marx is again so important to him yeah. but in the analysis of capital mm -hmm. but he is looking at the capitalist world system from the perspective of being perceived as a commodity within it, but knowing that he is a soul. Mm -hmm. And that is a specific phenomenology. And I think that's where that uh, tension comes from, which is Marx is studying it as, okay, the sense that I don't know, even Marx, you have a sense that the slave is, the idea of the slave 
And I think this goes back to the 19th century education that he received in Europe. Mm -hmm. He's limited by his education as we all are, um, unless we have the right teachers. <laughs> um, and, um, hey, Divya, can well, I ask yeah. a question? Uh, how mm -hmm. would you interpret Henry Winston's attempt to reinvigorate Marxism with Du Bois? How would I interpret it? I mean, well, how, how would you assess it? I think it's, I think it's- I don't know that everybody knows what I'm talking about. Maybe you could, you know, elaborate. Well, Henry Winston, of course, uh, was Doc's mentor and um, in, the, in the party. And he was, um, I think an incredible thinker personally, uh, because what he was able to do was get to the finer nuances within the movements. Um, and it wasn't always popular, but what he always emphasized was don't attack King. Because don't attack King, don't attack the men of God, the women of God, don't attack people that work in the community and lift the spirit of the people because they are the salt of the earth. And um, I think Henry Winston being a worker, a leader of workers saw that, whether that was with the sanitation workers. Um, so it's that asymptotic relation that King had with the, you know, it's like he's never quite in the you know party but he's not against it right i think gandhi had that same relation it's so interesting to study their compare them because um you know of course there were tensions between gandhi and the party in india mm -hmm. but um ultimately you know there is that oneness of the goal itself which is freedom and i think henry winston was able to see that and you know he he saw he saw without his eyes mm -hmm. he saw with the eyes of the soul mm -hmm. and i think that's i'm not saying that it's just like i i just think sight is something that is not bound to the body it's like and he had that mm -hmm. Uh, we have a few comments. Uh, Nuri writes, I think it's significant that Ramesh Chandra takes Du Bois and Robeson as the forerunners to look to for the peace movement. We've talked about Du Bois's formulations on Pan-Africa and Pan-Asia, peace and whiteness, but I think Robeson is also crucial for unity because his living out of the universality of folk culture and the potential unity of the working masses which included the Scottish and Welsh miners and their songs. In this way, though, uh, though European civilization is, quote, incapable of leading humanity forward and must make way for united Africa and Asia to lead because Eurocentrism is the principle of white supremacy, there seems to be a place for the white masses in this new unity, as we've discussed in past weeks, if they renounce the dogma of whiteness for the true common human identity presented by the darker nations. 
um, and she shared a quote from Robeson's uh, The Related Sounds of Music. Uh, and Robeson says, our music, the black music of African and American derivation belonged to a great inheritance of the world, to the great folk, uh, sorry, to the great folk music of the world. These songs, ballads and poetic church hymns are similar to the songs of the bards of the Scottish Hebrides, the Welsh bards of the Druid tradition and the Irish bards. They are similar to the unknown singers of the Russian folk tales, the bards of the Icelandic and Finnish sagas, singers of the American Indians, the bard of the Veda hymns in India, the Chinese poet singers, the Hasidic sects and the bards of our African forefathers. Systematic study and research seeking the origin of the folk music of different peoples in many parts of the world showed that a world reservoir, a universal source of basic folk themes exists from which the entire folk music is derived and to which they have a direct or an indirect tie. My interest in the universality of mankind and the sense of a basic tie which all people have to each other led to the idea of a universal source of folk music. And then uh, Nuri adds also, this also makes me think about how Du Bois and Robeson both stood up for the truth and were willing to sacrifice. Du Bois being denied a visa, Robeson losing many of his opportunities to perform, unlike Galileo Galilei, and how that commitment to truth is so important to what is needed in these neo-McCarthyist times. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, Emily writes, Emily writes, uh, it's really sad that Du Bois and his contribution have been erased. I grew up in Massachusetts where Du Bois was born and never read him. I barely knew his name until I was introduced him, uh, to him essentially by the free school. On the other hand, I also hear people today dismiss Du Bois as elitist. The little I knew about Du Bois was also the lies that he was an elitist and the talented 10th. King's tribute to Du Bois really captured how false and insulting those claims are. Du Bois is so prophetic in what forces are necessary to transform our world and what consensus or order we will have to face. Sometimes I feel that we are working so hard to even catch up to Du Bois. Uh, another comment from Samberta Chatterjee. He writes, it seems to me that this quest for truth is unique to the black and brown liberation struggles as opposed to struggle simply for political victories in various parts and times of the world. Gandhi seems to be one of the manifestations of a certain humility that cannot be separated from this quest, which forces him to question himself at every step of the quest and never believe that he has seen the whole truth. The article is really inspiring in that even with this constraint, it teaches us to hope in a principled manner to create new truth by study and imagination. It makes me think that firm belief in humanity necessarily goes hand in hand with this humility and self-questioning, which insists both on the existence of this truth and a constant striving towards it, never to be claimed, never to be claimed to have been reached. Uh, in response to Nuri's uh, comment about Robeson, Vincent writes, this reminds me of something Sonny Rollins recently wrote on the unity of world music. He said, I believe in reincarnation, which means that a person playing music has got a lot of things in his mind that he's already, that he's heard already. He puts them together and that comes out in his style. 
So you might recognize Louis Armstrong style, but it's still derivative of every kind of music that exists. Any experiences that he's had or things that he's played, he takes and folds into himself and they become something new. Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, John Coltrane, their styles are ultimately made up of many lives, spanning that back to that first sound. And that material is there for all musicians and artists to access. It's an accumulation of wisdom, the context art gives us that puts life into perspective. You know, uh, if I might just say, you know, Rollins is getting at something very important, and that is the cyclical nature of the evolutionary development of knowledge. You know, we are always uh, in under different uh, circumstances thinking through ancient problems and ancient ideas. Um, you know, uh, nothing is all that new. Uh, even the quantum or the relativity or quantum computing. It's just that the implementation of the philosophical and theoretical problem using a different kind of hardware is what is before us. And that is why, you know, and, and, and you know, uh, this thing of Henry Winston, a man of the South from Mississippi, a worker uh, could see things in Du Bois and King, which were not obvious to other people. It is, you know, because it was kind of seeing the world through an ancient eye, through an ancient perspective. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and that very much relates to Nandatha's argument that perhaps we see more if we do not limit ourselves to the European context of knowledge. It is a beginning, but not an end. And it itself is a part of an evolution, a cyclical evolution, where to go forward, you have to go back. You know, and just like now, we're saying that to go forward in the struggle, especially in this country, we have to go back and reconsider the body of work of W.E.B. Du Bois. I don't see any, any way to move forward uh, and, and such. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, what Vincent, I agree with Vincent, I mean, his quote from Sonny Rollins, but Sonny Rollins is applying through Buddhism uh, uh, an approach to knowledge and the history of knowledge, which says that there are hardly any new questions. There's just various and new ways of interpreting and approaching answers to those questions. Uh, to illustrate what you're saying, Doc, I was reading. Uh, uh, I was reading a book on the on the Buddha, and he um, one of the primary teachings that he imparted to his students was exactly this, that accept no authority and accept no dogma. Mm -hmm. um, any truth that you're presented with, you, you must be able to assess it on your own terms with your own, you know, um, faculties. Um, so even the, <laughs> even the solutions we come up with are old solutions. 
that have to be reinterpreted, reimagined for our times. Mm -hmm. But you know, the other thing too is with Du Bois, you have this, um, you have Kali, you have a fundamentally African and Asiatic idea of motherhood, which goes back to Henry Winston. I think um, what he says about the family um, in, uh, you know, the idea of the family is the foundation of the bourgeois system. Um, and I think that is where this uh, new uh, emerging uh, order Mm -hmm. is going to really try to um, it's it's you know whether that's women whether that is sexual relations whether that's the idea of sex itself which you know you must wonder is 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 that what liberates you I thought sex was bondage as the Buddha said is desire it only keeps you closer. And this is, you know, an ancient idea again. It goes back to the Vedas as well. Desire is suffering. And uh, whether that's for artha, wealth, kama, desire, uh, sexual desire, or um, I forget the third one. <laughs> artha, kama, and uh, anyway, point is that. Buddhism is the fulfillment of Hinduism, is how Swami Vivekananda put it, in the sense that he says that the relation of the Buddha to Hindu society is very similar to the relation of Jesus to the Jews. Because Jesus was a Jew, but the Jews ended up collaborating with the Romans to crucify him. Now the Hindus they didn't crucify Jesus, uh, Buddha. They ultimately accepted him, thank God. And now he's seen as God in Hinduism. So there isn't a separation necessarily, I would say. And Du Bois doesn't either, I think, in Dark Princess, when he says, you know, Matthew, your mother is Kali. In Hinduism, there is no difference between Brahman, you know, and Shakti who is feminine and masculine. So this cosmology is uh, again, ancient and it has modern application. Hey, Johan, do you mm -hmm. think we can get on to reading the- uh, Yeah, yeah, we can get, just one more, one more comment. Yeah, yeah, one more comment and then uh, last comment and then we'll go to that. Uh, Purba Chatterjee writes, I want to comment on the importance of imagination, which is related to Nanatha's third assumption of humanity, an unmitigated tragedy of current times is the severe attack on imagination and the ability of people to envision a truly free society. People, especially young people, are pigeonholed into political identities that display an incomplete and reactionary understanding of social forces. The revolutionary potential of mass movements is reduced to mediocrity because of a lack of imagination of what the world could look like. In order to build a new world, 
one must first be able to imagine the kind of world that humanity deserves. Through imagination, one can truly perceive the full potential of human struggle. Every world historic movement whose principles have stood the test of time was forged by people who had a dream for humanity and who then proceeded to realize that dream by uniting people in principled struggle. We must reinforce the ability of young people to dream without fear of a better world. To quote Du Bois in The World in Africa, even an unrealized dream would be better than the present nightmare. <laughs> so, okay, uh, we, with that, we can move on to- uh, I'll be right back. Okay, sure. Um, we can move on to Russia and America, which uh, Michelle will be uh, reading for us from the first chapter. Uh, I, I have posted a link to, the, uh, to a website where you can download the full PDF in the description uh, for today's live stream. And it had also previously been emailed out to everyone by Yvonne. I would just ask, uh, make sure that when you click the link, it takes you to, the, to a page that has the full PDF. I, I actually switched the link out. The first couple minutes I posted a link to a PDF, which was partial, but the one up now, it has the full uh, text. So I just want to clarify that. Um, and uh, so everyone can, can click that, open it, download it for those who don't already have it ready. Okay, you can should give I? about a minute and you have people. Sure. Should I read the apology as well? The preface? Um, how long is it? Just one page, right? Yeah, I can start by reading that. Okay. Okay. The Apology. Three times during the last quarter century, I have had glimpses of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. For more than four-fifths of the last hundred years, I have lived in the United States of America. In 1926, for a month or more, I saw Moscow and the other chief cities of the Soviets from Leningrad to Kiev, from Nizhny Novgorod to Odessa. Ten years later, encircling the earth, I saw the Soviet Union from Moscow to Manchuria, over Omsk, Novosibirsk, and Lake Baikal, and thence to China and Japan. A third time in 1948, amid the 28 marble pillars of the former Hall of Nobles in Moscow, I looked into the faces of a thousand Russians from every part of the vast nation and joined them in a plea for peace. I read the books of other visitors, then I said, I must write a book. So this at last is the book I've written and may men have mercy on my word. W.E.B. Du Bois, New York 23 West 26th Street on a day in June, 1950. Chapter one, A Quest for Clarity. Erastus Milo Kravath, first president of Fisk University looked like God certainly like the God which the Congregational Sunday School painted on my child mind. He was tall, a little stooped, with long white beard and silver hair. His face was misty, with lineaments like those limbed by 15th century Italian painters, and his blue eyes hid beneath bushed brows, whence they gleamed, now stern, now somber. Sometimes we students thought they twinkled, as when he earnestly asked the Lord, as he often did, to forgive us for our shortcomings. 
we were convinced he referred to Little Cummings, a fellow student who was an imp. I was just turned 20 when we five seniors entered the president's class in philosophy. Tyndall, dignified but dumb, Lenora, sleepy but keen, with her long black Indian hair, Edmondson, then thin, elegant, and scholarly, Mamie, cold, spotless, and bitter, and I, the youngest and most unsophisticated. To me, college was very serious business. I was especially thrilled with this course. At last, I was getting at the inner meaning of things and about to face ultimate truth. I was wary of elements and introductions and secondhand comments and descriptions. The new text said that we were to study the stream of consciousness without reference to space and with no limits of time. Needless to say that eventually I was in part disappointed. On occasion when we were apparently splitting consciousness into unrelated parts, I ventured to remind our grave teacher that the knowing mind could not thus be limited in space. He answered dryly, but it must be somewhere. One thing, however, that course of study did was to open vistas and resolves. I was going to know truth. I was going to stop at no little college for colored folk in Tennessee. I was going to seek the best and largest institutions in the world until I knew what life was and why. Good old Professor Chase, who taught everything called science and who always advised his pupils on ways of eventually earning a living, could arouse little response in me. I was not interested in earning a living. I was going to study, and when the Hartford Theological Seminary offered me a scholarship, I was almost rude. I did not regard theology as study, nor was I going to be a minister. What I regarded thereafter as being captain of my soul was of course mostly good luck, but sure enough next year, after graduation, I appeared at Harvard. It was not the Harvard of the Boston Brahmins nor the Hastings Pudding Club, of neither of which I had ever heard, nor had I the slightest interest in Yale games. I entered the Harvard of William James, Josiah Royce, George Santayana, Nathaniel Shaler, and Albert Bushnell Hart, and they gave me their friendship. I just, um, just those uh, people that he mentioned, um, they were young, but would become leading interpreters of European philosophy. Uh, William James, of course, uh, was the outsider who rejected European metaphysics of Kant and Hegel and others. Um, Josiah Royce was more an idealist philosopher, more Hegelian. Uh, uh, George Santayana was a late 19th century American follower of Hegel. Nathaniel Scheller, I don't know, but Albert Bushnell Hart would become uh, the chair of W.E.B. Du Bois's dissertation uh, at Harvard. Uh, and he will talk about them, but I just wanted to mention them. They were young, but they were uh, the future in a lot of ways of American philosophy, academic philosophy, going into the first decades of the uh, 20th century. And uh, by the way, William James is still a figure in philosophy because of his pragmatism. And by pragmatism, they meant the rejection of any metaphysical 
uh, discussion about what was ethical. What was ethical was determined by how well it worked to produce, um, uh, you could say, ethical or good human outcomes. So we, we can come back. I just wanted to mention those. And they all befriended uh, Du Bois in a Harvard atmosphere that he generally considered uh, hostile. Uh, he wanted to be a part of the Harvard Glee Club. He always liked to sing, but they didn't allow uh, black people in it. Uh, he, he could not live, on, he didn't live on the campus. He lived in the black community in Boston and he socialized mainly with them. Josiah Royce with his enormous redhead and incomparable mind led me to a conception of absolute reality through philosophic idealism. This derived of course from the thinking of the master, Immanuel Kant, and with the young George Santayana, incredibly handsome, I read the critique Der Reinen Vermouth and staggered somewhat. Pure reason. It's English here. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. And staggered somewhat uncertainly down to the vast Hegelian system of universal comprehension. But no mention was made of Karl Marx and his application of this interpretation of the development of thought and action to the daily work and wage of men. I am sure Santayana would have regarded this as unworthy of the high aims of philosophy. William James in the fall of 1888 took over ethics while Palmer was on leave. By his pragmatic shift from absolute right and wrong to conduct that would bring the best results, he guided my thinking from the absolute to the relative and from systems to human beings. He emphasized this by setting me to study medieval scholasticism and its intricate but futile and sterile thinking. He advised me to avoid metaphysics if I could. I did so and it was Francis Peabody's course on social problems which let new light in on my life interests. Peabody was a clergyman rather than a scientist and he was regarded rather lightly by the greater minds of the university. His course was orientated toward philanthropy and organized charity rather than poverty stricken and ignorant and ailing men. But it awakened me. I began to sense something wrong in the underlying organization of human work and income and something not entirely race prejudice. I began to hear of Robert Owen, Saint Simon, Fourier and Proudhon and of their criticism of modern industry. But still there came no word of Karl Marx. Let me just say something about those names. Robert Owen, Saint Simon, Fourier and Proudhon they're all early pre-Marxist economists, uh, a bit radical uh, in the sense that they were trying to understand the contradictions of uh, modern capitalism uh, and so on. So I just wanted to mention those. But as he says, but no Karl Marx. Mm. And, and by the way, Marx offered critiques of each of these thinkers. It is natural that one born in the midst of a particular social problem should tend to interpret all other problems in its light. 
In my earlier years, then the problems of property, work, and poverty were to me but manifestations of the basic problem of color. My family in its various branches were poor or at best middle class, small landholders, slipping down to house servants, barbers, waiters, and laborers. So far as they were not rich and influential, the cause to my youth was clear, color prejudice, which denied good position and fair wage to Negroes. But I was honest enough to add to this laziness and failure to save. For in our New England village of 5,000 with surrounding farmers, there was no great disparity of wealth and what existed could certainly be explained in part by thrift and saving and much of the rest by inheritance, which was the same thing a generation removed. In after years, I sensed there had been much before my eyes, which I did not heed. There was, for instance, a woolen mill in the upper town, which not only fouled the lovely Housatonic River, but nurtured about it a wretched slum of poor Irish and German workers. The owner's two brothers were rich and lived downtown in fine houses. I knew for I was chum of their two sons and played and ate in their homes. I saw no close connection between the mill and its slums and their wealth, which could not be explained by shiftlessness and saving. And the fact that the mill children disliked me did not occur to me as possibly their opinion of a toady to the rich, nor was I really consciously a worshiper of wealth. But since my lack of means came from lack of thrift among my folk and lack of recognition of desert by whites, my path seemed clear, hard work and enlightenment. When I went South College, when I went South College, I saw, yeah, I saw poverty, which was still due to shiftlessness, but that shiftlessness more certainly and openly the result of past slavery of the workers and present injustice. Race problems, therefore, to my mind became the main cause of poverty, probably because I saw little of the poor whites and envisaged them as carriers of color prejudice. Nothing in my college courses at Harvard led me yet to question the essential justice of the industrial system of the nation. I did, however, after the first year, veer from my chosen field of pure philosophy. After looking into scholasticism of the past and the pure idealism of the 19th century Germany, I sensed the dead end ahead and talked to William James. He said, frankly, do boys, if you've got to study philosophy, you will. But if you can turn aside, I advise you to do so. I turned aside. I had already begun to sense the path from metaphysics to science. Münsterberg had just arrived, and I had not only touched geology and chemistry, but been attracted by the new social sciences and history under Albert Bushnell Hart, particularly the history of slavery. I gained a conception of the universe not as static and eternal truth as my youth conceived, but as ever-changing and developing facts, and of law not as statute legislation, but of workable hypothesis regarding the unknown, ready for restatement whenever new facts and a better hypothesis demanded. Hart was the antithesis of James, slave of infinite system, 
stickler for detailed facts, insatiable chronicler of deeds. He was antidote to my previous unlimited speculation. He kept me busy entirely research, but he furnished me no broad guiding principles of interpretation for human life. I began restlessly studying and classifying. Can I just say one thing? This is a very important thing. Like, you know, he goes to Harvard as, as he had been at Fisk, uh, majoring in philosophy. He wanted to do philosophy. But then William James says, man, you can't make a living in it. So maybe you should change. So then he gives up philosophy, which he's calling metaphysics. And he uh, turns to history. But as, you know, as he will say in other places, he does not abandon philosophy because he feels that there are underlying assumptions that philosophy is trying to grapple with. So he doesn't give it up all altogether. But, you know, he does history, philosophy, and sociology. It's kind of a, a triad, a trilogy in his um, uh, working up of knowledge at this point. I turned to economics and under our keenest economist, Frank Tossig, took his favorite course on the wages fund. Here my mind began to rebel. Tosig was logical and learned, but he was dogmatic and wrong. He set up a series of assumptions on human nature and activities in the world, and then argued from these assumptions to unquestionable laws of wages and profits. The reasoning was logical. The assumptions were not allowed to be questioned, for his learning refuted every attempt. At the end of his course, the Ricardian iron of Iron Law of Wages stood fast and eternal. It was in my senior year that I took two other courses in my search for more satisfactory orientation for life work. One was conducted by Edward Cummings, a slim newcomer from European study, who instructed us in a new subject called sociology, which was not recognized by Harvard as a science then, nor for 20 years after. When finally it was born in the yard, it was under the midwifery of a white Russian opponent of the Russian Revolution. In 1890, Cummings brought us the beginnings of metaphysical sociology based on Comte and Innocent of Marx. He talked of the social body, its activity, thought, and soul. If I had not already been grounded in James, Royce, and Santayana, this might have satisfied me. As it was, I was repelled and asked some disturbing questions in class. Presuming on my high status as senior, where was the ego back of this soul? And could an unified and integrated organism exist without an ego? Without, without an identity, without a person, without agency. That's what that's where he's using the word ego. Mm -hmm. There was, of course, no satisfactory answer to such queries. And after a year or so, Cummings went into the ministry as assistant to Edward Everett Hale. I remembered him because through his good offices, I later borrowed Hale's gorgeous academic gown for my commencement part on Jefferson Davis as a representative of civilization. My graduate work with Albert Bushnell Hart was more successful in results. 
Hart was not a professional, profound scholar, but he was a systematic collector of historic documents as facts. And he has inspired his students to real work in historical research. His system of filing and array of file cases was imposing and tremendously reassuring. I started with a bibliography of the Nat Turner insurrection and ended with a PhD thesis on the suppression of the African slave trade to America, which became the first number of the then new Harvard historical series. Hart expected me to become a collector and arranger of historical information as he was, and he would have opened many doors for publication, even to fighting the color line which might have hindered my work. But I had other ideas. I was dissatisfied with my study of the slave trade because it ended too abruptly and yielded too narrow a field for valid judgment of human action. If I could study what man had done, why not investigate thoroughly and scientifically what he was doing now and what he might do in the future? In other words, I was seeking a science of human action, which could be used not only for studying the Negro problem, but for all the problems of the poor and ignorant. I do not know just when or how clearly all this matured in my mind, but when I went to Germany in 1892, I was ready to study basic industrial and social reform. When he says industrial, what he's really saying is political economy. When he goes to Germany, he wants to study political economy. Now this is before he completes his PhD dissertation at Harvard. Uh, he has intentions at the University of Berlin, which was the leading university in the West at the time, uh, which then was named after World War II, it was named Karl Marx University. Uh, but he was going there to do a PhD. Uh, but the fund, the Slater Fund that was funding his scholarship there suddenly cut off his money saying, you know, and they felt under pressure from Booker T. Washington's people that, or that thinking that Negroes didn't need these highfalutin degrees from European universities. So the thesis that he was doing there, he ultimately included it in the PhD dissertation he was doing uh, at Harvard. Uh, but the thing, when he says he's you know, studying industrial relations, he's really talking about political economy. And what he was, his thesis in Germany was, he completed it, nobody knows where it is, but it was on a comparison of the land tenure system in the South of Germany and in the South of the United States. So it's kind of a study of labor, property, and the issues of political economy. It was in Germany that my first awakening to social reform began. My teachers, Adolf Wagner and Gustav Schmoller, were not radicals nor Marxists but they were broad and inspiring men and the atmosphere of Rudolf Virchow, reactor magnificus, when I entered the University of Berlin led me far. Nor did this frenzied diatribe of von Treitsk fail to, my, to open my eyes to the connection between European imperialism and race hate. Yeah. I can see him now, huge, nervous, black coated, 
with swift tumbling words, glaring as it seemed directly at me as he said, Dimulatin sin niedrig, sid fühlen niedrig. Does anybody know what that means? Uh, I don't know, I know it in English. Uh, the mulatto is, is a Negro and something like that, you know. Uh, so he was, he was looking at Du Bois and he saw Du Bois as not a pure Negro, but as a mulatto. And he was telling, and von Troitska was saying that the Negro, that a mulatto is a Negro uh, at any rate and was inferior. But he would, Du Bois would also say that outside of saying that, uh, he got along pretty well with um, uh, 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 Trotska, you know. I'm sorry, just to make that. I became consequently particularly interested in the Social Democratic Party. They were the greatest party in Germany, but had been gerrymandered out of their strength by Bismarck. But they were strong and growing, and they emphasized the fundamental Marxian doctrine of the basic importance of labor in human culture. I attended their meetings and picnics and became strongly tinged with theoretical socialism. Moreover, I now actually saw poverty. In Germany, in Italy, in Eastern Europe, poverty which was not a matter of race but of industrial organization. And when race entered as a cause of social dislocation, as it did in Germany and Poland, it was a matter of white folk and not of the color line. Returning to America in the fall of 1892, I was plunged into the- Actually, 1894. He has a, he returns in 1894, sorry. I was plunged into the color problem again, but not with the same provincialism as before. For me, social reform still meant primarily the opening of doors to black men so that they might run the race of life in equal competition with the white. I was teaching at Wilberforce, Greek, Latin, German, everything but the new sociology which I yearned to help build as a science when Booker T. Washington laid down his industrial program at Atlanta in 1895. Wilberforce is a historically black college Methodist in of Ohio, so he was teaching there. And in Atlanta, 1895, Booker T. Washington gives the historic speech um, at the Atlanta Agriculture Exposition Fair, where he says to black people, forget about the vote, more or less, and put your buckets down where you are and work hard. Mm -hmm. Kind of a Protestant ethic uh, argument. I was all for it, save one thing. It must be implemented by the vote and not fatally ignore the suffrage. And the voter must be guided by trained minds. After two years came my chance to place my theories of race relations on a scientific basis where practical statesmen could link them with the social uplift of all men. I got a year's chance to study the Negro in a single Philadelphia ward. This work, which was lengthened to nearly two years, made, for me, the problems fronting the Negroes clear and vivid and launched me on a scientific solution of broad social measurement, presenting facts to the world for use in any way men would. 
In such an ivory tower of social reform, I went to a life work at Atlanta University. A black university, which was hardly a university at that time when he arrives in around 1898-97. But his intent is to make it into a university to do what he could not do at Wilberforce, and that is to set up a department of sociology and a what he called a sociological laboratory and to make um, Atlanta into a competitive center of social research to Harvard or any other elite university. Sorry to keep interrupting you just. But after 13 years of effort, I found my life revolutionized. I found on the one hand, hard as I tried to present carefully garnered and objective truth to the American world, this world would not support the effort. And that with the facts before it, lynching and lying in America increased and the Tuskegee, the Tuskegee idea distorted from its defensible logic was being used to close Negro colleges and make Negro labor a low wage caste. Let me just say Tuskegee, I, I hate to keep bringing this up. Tuskegee was uh, the black college in Tuskegee, Alabama that was, uh, I think, founded by Booker T. Washington and operated upon his principles, uh, which Du Bois is saying was he, even the, the positive logic of it had been taken out. And therefore, the idea, the Tuskegee idea of higher education for Black people were teaching, uh, quote, industrial and agricultural skills like. Uh, carpentry, uh, yada, 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 because black people under the idea of put your buckets down where you are, do for self and that type of thing, needed uh, skills that could lead to them doing something rather than thinking. Mm -hmm. So that was the Tuskegee idea. Reluctantly, I turned from science to propaganda and went to New York to help organize and conduct the new National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I attended a races Congress in London in 1911 and addressed it. I began to give attention to the race tensions of the East. I remember advising a high caste Indian who was consulting me to make alliance between India and the new British Labor Party. He stiffened and said slowly, I do not think we would like to be associated with dirty English workers. I think we all began to think of a new era of interracial comedy, but even then tremors foretelling the first world war reached us. Back in the United States, I was compelled to surrender thoughts of detached scientific study of the race problem and go into the arena as a social fighter rather than as a scientific student. I deeply disliked this role and never proved demagogue enough to be successful as popular leader or public propagandist. But I did succeed in 1910 in establishing the Crisis Magazine as an organ for my ideas, and it gained wide circulation. In 1915, I took a brief trip to Jamaica and for the first time saw the colonial problem face to face. In New York, I was thrown with socialists among my colleagues and the NAACP were Charles Edward Russell, 
William English Walling and Mary White Ovington, all members of the Socialist Party. There were conservatives like Oswald Garrison Villard and liberals like John Haynes Holmes and Joel Springarn. But I joined the Socialist Party in 1911 and from then forward began to regard the problem of race more and more as a part of the problem of industrial reform. Of capitalism. But two developments obscured my broader vision. First, the extraordinary anti-Negro outbreak following the election of the first Southern-born president since the Civil War, for whose election I had left the Social Socialist Party in 1912 to fight. And secondly, the outbreak of the First World War with race riots, lynching and burning, migration and hostile legislation. The appearance of the Negro as strike breaker and the question of his entrance into the army as private and officer. The guy that he's talking about in election 19, he's talking about Woodrow Wilson. He left the Socialist Party to vote for Woodrow Wilson. That's what he's saying. The first Southerner uh, to be in the White House since uh, the end of the Civil War. It was then that the Russian Revolution took place and I scarce knew what it meant to me and to the world. Not much had been said of Russia in my school days, in secondary nor high school years. In college, I remember reading George Kennan's articles in the Century Magazine. These stories of cruelty and injustice connected with banishment to Siberia stirred me greatly. The long trek across a quarter of the world, the tearing apart of families, the insensibility to human suffering. I have never quite outlived the impression which these stories made upon me. Rather negligently, I followed what little was offered in the press on Russian history and policy. Chiefly, it was a matter of czars and grand dukes in their relations with Western Europe. Of the folks themselves, there were only incidental references to picturesque mujiks. Passing references to anarchists and the assassination of a czar and high officials left in my mind the current impression of Russia as semi-civilized and tyran tyrannical, tyrannous. Tsar yeah. Alexander III was reigning while I was studying in Germany and in 1893 sent his fleet to France to conclude the Entente Cordiale. This was impressed on me as I saw in Berlin on the Tempelhofer Field, a celebration of the renewal of the Triple Alliance with pomp and pageantry and with Wilhelm II and the Italian Crown Prince present. Later in 1900, I attended the most perfect of international exhibitions in Paris and crossed the Pont Alexandre, which celebrated the new Franco-Russian Alliance. For my exhibit on American Negroes, I received a gold medal. And at the same time, I noted exhibits of the new Russian industry, which French investment was then nourishing. All this was of passing interest until Russia and Japan went to war in 1904 to 1905. I admired the temerity of one of the darker peoples daring to wage war against a great white power. I remember outlining its progress on the floor of the chapel of Atlanta University and using my baby daughter's choo-choo train to mark the moving of the armies along the Trans-Siberian Railroad. My concept of Russia began to gain body and clearness. 
Already my contact with socialism in Germany had made me critical of czarism. And there is no now added the race problem in the conflict of a white and colored people. After that, I followed from afar the Russians struggle for emancipation and drew parallels between Russian peasants and American freedmen, emancipated at nearly the same moment and both kept in slavery by denial of land. I read of the pogroms, pogroms against the Jews and likened them to our lynchings, which were ominously increasing. Then came the unthinkable First World War, which tore at the moorings of all my historical knowledge and economic foresight, and at its edge, the Russian Revolution of 1917. I was bewildered at what was happening and tried for 10 years to withhold final judgment. With students and audiences on paper, I maintained that I did not know what was really happening in Russia. My ideas through a Pan-African Congress, which was held in Paris, with the consent of Clemenceau and was followed eventually in 1921 and 1923 by further meetings in London, Paris, and Brussels. Here, extraordinary opposition developed among the colonial powers, and I was accused openly in Brussels of being financed by Russia, which again called my attention to the revolution there. I made my first visit to Africa in 1923, visiting Liberia, and a few English and French colonies on the West Coast. I became vividly aware of a Negro problem far greater than I had envisaged in America, and my mind leaped further. More or less clearly, I found myself asking, is the problem of color and race simply and mainly a matter of difference in appearance and cultural variation, or has it something in common with the industrial organization of the world with poverty, ignorance, and disease? Has revolution in Russia something fundamental for the Negro problem in the United States and the colonial problem in Africa? But despite questionings and faith, I continued puzzled about Russia and what was happening there. The papers were flooded with tales, which I did not want to believe and yet found no answer. I realized that wartime propaganda had begun to dominate news gathering and that it was difficult to get the truth on many matters. How far this would eventually go, I did not then dream. Claude McKay took me to task in 1921 for not appreciating the remaining, the remain, the re renaming of the Russian Revolution. I replied in July, just one thing, Claude McKay is a poet and writer in the Harlem Renaissance, who was also a member of the Communist Party at this time and goes to Russia uh, at the more or less onset of the Russian Revolution. Mr. McKay is wrong in thinking that we have ever intentionally sneered at the Russian Revolution. On the contrary, time may prove, as he believes, that the Russian Revolution is the greatest event of the 19th and 20th centuries, and its leaders the most unselfish prophets. At the same time, the crisis does not know this to be true. Russia is incredibly vast, and the happenings there in the last five years have been intricate to a degree that must make any student pause. 
We sit therefore with waiting or how it would result. I certainly believed Russia needed radical- Oh, by, oh, by the way, uh, you see they got to pages 11 and 12 or, are going in the wrong direction. Oh, I should have read that. I should have read 11 first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but just go to 13, we'll just, you know. Okay. Hands and listening ears, seeing some splendid results from Russia, like the cartoons for public education recently exhibited in America and hearing of other things which frighten us. The editor of the crisis considers himself a socialist but he does not believe that German state socialism or the dictatorship of the proletariat are perfect panaceas. He believes with most thinking men that the present method of creating, controlling and distributing wealth is desperately wrong, that there must come and is coming a social control of wealth, but he does not know just what form that control is going to take. And he is not prepared to dogmatize with Marx or Lenin. Further than that, and more fundamental to the duty and outlook of the crisis, is this question. How far can the colored people of the world, and particularly the Negroes of the United States, trust the whole working class? Sis. Many honest thinking Negroes assume, and Mr. McKay seems to be one of these, that we have only to embrace the working class program to have the working class embrace ours that we have only to join trade unionism and socialism or even communisms as they're today expounded to have union labor and socialists and communists believe and act on the equality of mankind and the abolition of the color line. The crisis wishes that this were true, but it is forced to the conclusion that it is not. The American Federation of Labor as representing the trade unions in America has been grossly unfair and discriminatory toward Negroes and still is. American socialism has discriminated against black folk and before the war was prepared to go further with this discrimination. European socialism has openly discriminated against Asiatics, nor is this surprising. Why should we assume on the part of unlettered and suppressed masses of white workers, a clearness of thought, a sense of human brotherhood that is sadly lacking in the most educated classes? Our task therefore, as it seems to the crisis is clear. We have to convince the working classes of the world that black men, brown men and yellow men are human beings and suffer the same discrimination that white workers suffer. We have, in addition to this, to espouse the cause of the white workers, only being careful that we do not, in this way, allow them to jeopardize our cause. We must, for instance, have bread. If our white fellow workers drive us out of decent jobs, we are compelled to accept indecent wages, even at the price of scabbing. It is a hard choice. But whose is the blame? Finally, despite public prejudice and clamor, we should examine with open mind in literature, debate, and in real life the great programs of social reform that are day by day being put forward. In April 1922, I spoke a stronger word. 
Russia is the most amazing and most hopeful phenomenon of the post-war period. She has been murdered, bullied, lied about, and starved, and yet she maintains her government, possesses her soul, and is simply compelling the world to recognize her right to freedom, even if that freedom involves the industrial reconstruction of her society. Later, my views became more definite. There can be no question but that the Russians have made a good appearance in, at Genoa. Their demand for recognition as a de jure government was logically inevitable and unanswerable. Their initial offer to reduce the military forces so as to lessen France's excuse for a great army was not only delicious but fair. Their treaty with Germany was reasonable within itself and no one else's business. Their offer to assume the pre-war debt incurred by Azar for the purpose of enslaving the mass of Russians was generous. And their desire for a loan paralleled the desire of nearly every other nation. The world still has a right to doubt the ability of the Bolshevik to con the Bolsheviki to conduct in peace and prosperity, industry and government by democratic political methods, or even by oligarchy for the benefits of the mass of people, or of the right of a government to sequester private property and manage commercial enterprises. We ourselves are doing business as expression, as expressmen, farmers, manufacturers, bankers, Miners and weather prophets. The Bolsheviki may be dreamers, but they are not fools. In 1923, I invited Claude McKay, who had visited Russia, to tell our readers what he saw and heard. He wrote, through Western Europe, though Western Europe can be reported as being quite ignorant and apathetic of the Negro and world affairs, there is one great nation with an arm in Europe that is thinking intelligently on the Negro, as it does about all international problems. When the Russian workers overturned their infamous government in 1917, one of the first acts of the new premier, Lenin, was a proclamation greeting all the oppressed peoples throughout the world, exhorting them to organize and unite against the communist, inter the common international oppressor, private capitalism. Later on in Moscow, Lenin himself grappled with the question of the American Negroes and spoke on the subject before the Second Congress of the Third International. He consulted with John Reed, the American journalist, and dwelt on the urgent necessity of propaganda and organizational work among Negroes of the South. The subject was not allowed to drop. When Sen Katayama of Japan, the veteran revolutionist, went from the United States to Russia in 1921. He placed the American Negro problem first upon his full agenda. And ever since he has been working unceasingly and unselfishly to promote the cause of the exploited American Negroes among the Soviet councils of Russia. I just say one thing. When he says the third international, he's talking about, and this, the whole thing that uh, Claude McKay is reporting on is the, I think the first Congress of the Communist International held in Moscow. And that is when a resolution on the national and colonial question was put forward for all communists to agree to, which established 
that the Negro question, especially in the South, could be considered on a par with the colonial question of Africa and Asia. So that's, that's the, and that no, uh, as Claude McKay said, no major power had ever taken seriously the colonial question or the Negro question, as was the case with the Soviet Union. I was impressed by McKay's story of his experience in Russia, but at the same time, I was upset by the current newspaper stories about Russia. Community of women, easy divorce and systematic abortions, collapse of industry, slave toil, and continued incipient revolt, famine, hunger, homelessness, and despair. I was determined if ever the chance came to visit Russia and see for myself. The chance came. Into my office early in 1926 walked three strangers. One was a dark short man, evidently educated and well-bred, who spoke only Russian and French. His attractive and carefully groomed wife spoke Russian, German, Italian, and English, all with facility. With them was a tall blonde German, a more nervous and patient character, who could use only his native tongue. They introduced themselves as Russians, familiar with my periodical, and anxious to enlist my sympathy in their effort to obtain for Russia the recognition of the United States. I was a little amused at their apparent ignorance of the lack of influence of a Negro with Washington, but I told them I thought recognition ought to be given, although I added frankly my usual line of not being able to judge of the new Russian regime since I knew so little about it and found reliable information so difficult to obtain. The German appeared to be an impatient revolutionist who wanted action. He hinted at revolt among oppressed Negroes. I sought to explain that we were winning our fight, albeit slowly, by peaceful but continuous agitation and legal battle. He did not stay long in New York. The other two were of different caliber. I explained to them the Negro problem as I saw it. They talked of Russia and its aims. Other calls and talks followed, which I and my wife enjoyed very much. At last they said frankly, would you not like to visit the Soviet Union so as to make up your mind as to its aims and accomplishment? I said I certainly would. I'm not at all satisfied with the knowledge that I have of the Russian Revolution. I should like to learn if possible, at first hand just what has taken place in Russia and just what the development is at present. I do not know that I could learn anything that would be an advantage to the colored people of the United States, but if there's anything to learn, I'm eager to learn it. On the other hand, in undertaking this or any other trip, I should not want to obligate myself to come to any particular conclusions or to follow any line of action or to see the facts with any other eyes except my own. They thereupon offered to pay the expense of the trip with the clear understanding that I would be free to examine conditions and come to my own conclusions. I accepted the offer with alacrity and left for Russia in the summer of 1926. I went to Antwerp to see Rubens. I ascended the Rhine looking again at the vaulted cathedral at Cologne, at the Gilet, at the Rheinfels, glancing at the old street of the Jews in Frankfurt. I went up into the third Thurigen Forest, where I first learned to know the old world and its culture a half century ago. 
But all my friends in Einsinach had disappeared in the war with little trace. I saw Berlin, a giant city which had become since the day I knew it, one of the centers of the world. But never before have I seen so many girls for open sale as on the streets of Berlin. I had to wait a week for a visa since I could get none in the United States. When my visa came, more confusion arose since my name, Du Bois, had been translated wood. <laughs> a messenger had to come all the way from Russia to straighten things out. At last in the summer of 1926, I set sail for Russia from Stettin. Simon Peter would have called me a scoffer, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, okay. That's quite a bit. Uh, he's setting it up and he will, you know, I don't know whether uh, we'll just end on that part, the first chapter, and then next week perhaps go to chapter two, where he talks about his uh, pilgrimage to Russia. Uh, and and what he saw, and then you know he will say in the second chapter, if what I saw is Bolshevism, then I am a Bolshevik. Uh, this was very interesting, and uh, it is on this trip. And by the way, uh, by the time he makes his first trip to the Soviet Union, uh, he's about fifty-eight years old. So he's a grown man. He's highly educated. He had uh, uh, left the university and become an activist. And as he says, a propagandist uh, publishing and writing for the crisis. Uh, but also uh, in 1918, uh, uh, the 1918, yes, the first Pan-African Congress uh, where he says to the, uh, the great powers at a meeting at Versailles, there cannot be a durable peace unless there's an answer to the colonial and racial problem. And the Western countries, of course, reject his appeal uh, to the detriment of all of humanity because it is the, the colonial racial problem that leads to the barbarity of World War II. And Du Bois's idea of the interlinkage of the of world peace to the colonial question is only inscribed in international law after uh, after World War II, where what he was saying uh, in uh, 1918 became apparent uh, by 1945, and so on. Um, uh, the other thing is that. While the Western countries rejected the appeals of his Pan-African Congress, he learns through Claude McKay and others, other Black people that had traveled to the Soviet Union, that Lenin had proclaimed, had this proclamation that the colonial question was linked to the question of world socialism uh, and to the so Russian Revolution, and that the Negro question had been elevated to a, from a domestic problem of the United States to a, um, a problem 
that was seen as part of the world movement towards freedom. Uh, and this level of internationalization and international recognition is uh, something that every generation since the Russian Revolution have relied upon. Uh, of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union or the undermining of the Soviet Union and the destruction of the world communist movement, we're thrown back into that situation we were in before the Russian Revolution, where you know all of the black leaders only talk about it as a domestic problem and not a part of the world anti-colonial and national liberation forces. Yeah, this, yeah, I don't know how clear that was. Uh, but Du Bois says he had always been a socialist. He only abandoned the Socialist Party in uh, 1912 when he didn't vote for Eugene Debs, but voted uh, for Woodrow Wilson. But he remained a socialist, and um, uh, but he was not certain of the Russian Revolution. And so he goes there and he studies it. Uh, and he favorably aligns himself with it. Uh, there's, a, there's so much to discuss from this chapter, but uh, maybe just to begin with, uh, one thing that really strikes me is, um, again, given the political context in which he's writing this, the very serious stakes uh, in writing this book at this time, um, the fact that it, it seems that he gives this topic such uh, great importance that he's starting with his intellectual biography, you know, like what, I, I, that's something I was struck by, in order for him to explain his position on uh, the Russian Revolution, he feels compelled to start with you know, what were the basics of philosophy he learned? What were the ideas in Western philosophy? What were these different thinkers saying? How did he first reach socialism uh, also? I mean, I think he's taking a very philosophical approach. And then he explains to us his engagement with Western socialism, with socialism in Germany, with the Socialist Party in the United States. And then gets into when he heard, you know, when he heard about Russia and the Russian Revolution. And um, so... I, I was just struck by the seriousness with which he approaches it. It's not just, you know, Russian Revolution happened, it was good. It's like, you know, this is putting it almost in the context of his own intellectual life and in the context of Western philosophy. Uh, his search for the truth. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and I think that's what he's saying. This is 1950, the height of the Cold War. So to explain, I, I was, I'm thinking, for broad public of all political persuasions in 1950, why he supports the Soviet Union, you know, uh, as a force for peace. And he's also saying, that's why I said, you know, all my life I've been interested in the truth. I'm not, you know, just a, an idle passerby in this journey, you know? And uh, so I, I agree with you about that, Joe. And it is, and it's almost the way he does things. It's in the Dusk of Dawn, the first major autobiography that he writes. Uh, 
And I think it's a way that he does social science, you know, which as you said, I mean, he is anchored to deep epistemological, existential, historical questions. None of this is separated from discovering the truth about Russia, the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union. Yeah, and I think it's also important in terms of who he represents as he views Russia, um, because and his background speaks to his journey um, over the decades shows that he is someone that is invested tr in truth for the black masses of America. And that's how he reaches Russia. Um, it's interesting as well, because the title is, uh, the title is A Quest for Clarity. Um, and something that we discussed at the very beginning of today is that there, the struggle for truth or the, this quest is not something that just ends, but that it is continuous. Um, and it also speaks to how unclear actually society was at his time, but also I guess for our times, um, which is why we're, it's important that we are reading this text um, because the society of the 1950s, 60s, um, there was just so much distrust in the world of people of different um, countries and I think he was speaking about how like everything he had known about Russia or the little that was taught about Russia um, was all bad and had no seeds for unity. But instead, um, in his quest in trying to search for what actually Russia was um, and kind of the revolution of 1918, instead he was able to see kind of, at least in this chapter, um, start to um, see that there might be a greater potential, um, which I guess sets up for his trip itself. And yeah, I think he, there was a, a specific quote where he connected the Russian peasant um, and their strivings to the American freedmen. Um, right. And, mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh, no, no, no. no this this mm -hmm. is huge, you know, because don't forget, Du Bois was never a huge figure in white intellectual life in this country. He never taught, maybe had a passing job once at the end, near the end of his life uh, at a white university, I think maybe at the new school. But Du Bois was never invited to be on the faculty at any white university. I don't think he would even want to be because his work, as he often said, was among his own people, you know? So Du Bois is at universities that are not recognized by white people. They're not recognized. I mean, Atlanta University, I know when I was, I went to Lincoln University, we were hardly, you know, seen as a center of knowledge or learning. And so Du Bois and the way he writes, the way he thinks is so different from the way the accepted uh, form of scholarship and thought at white universities, you know? And um, so, but he's not, he's so confident in his ability to know things. And, and he, you know, because of this, uh, uh, the apparatus that he deploys and, and he's so well educated, he knows so many things. He is always studying. So when he 
goes to Russia, and you'll see in the next chapters, he, he deploys all of this knowledge that he has of humanity, of European history, you know? And, um, and he's very confident in his conclusions. And when he writes this book, he's saying that consider this informed opinion. Now, I mean, it's a courageous work because he comes out in support of Lenin his, and Stalin, in fact, and very critical of Trotsky. His characterization of Trotsky is, is I mean, it would make you think of some of the people that we see rise up in, in our movements today or in, in the past. But that, that it's, it's such a, I think from that point, very, very significant of how he does social science. When I first read this, I was also, um, it really made an impression on me how he described his training. And, um, you know, even when he went to Harvard and he interacted with all of these white intellectuals, how he was able to draw from them yeah. uh, and take what was positive and, you know, take from philosophy, uh, these broad principles, but then take these scientific um, methods from the people he met later um, and kind of make his own methodology. Yeah. Uh, but also this broad education in, you know, philosophy and literature. And I mean, he clearly knows what he's talking about. Um, and it's almost like, uh, I mean, I don't know of many intellectuals today who would have a training like this. Uh, or who would even value a training like this? Um, you know, and I think among people who can, or intellectuals who consider themselves radical, it's unpopular to look at Europeans hot. Mm -hmm. um, but the way he does it um, and takes the best of it and then almost inverts it, <laughs> which is just so beautiful. Yeah, and um, building on that point, I, I mean, we've talked about how he, he often refers to himself as flesh of the flesh, bone of the bone. And you really see that, that he's, he's, represent, he's discussing the pressing questions which are facing um, the black masses. Uh, he talks about them very clearly. And as Anto was saying, being from that community, he also understands the white world and being somebody with such broad training, he... He understands intimately both uh, the white world and its thought processes and the best of its mm -hmm. uh, education and political thought and the questions, the pressing questions which concern Black America. And so in some ways, it seems like he's setting that up, that this is where he's coming from and visiting Russia. This is who he's, it's like he's uh, laying it all on the table. This is, this is what he was approaching it with. Um, and then also when he's talking about the way in which he heard the news, that was something I found interesting. Like you would hear about this Russia-Japanese war. You hear about, okay, these prop pogroms in Russia. So it's, as an American, this is what you would have heard. I mean, anybody, an average sort of 
person who followed the news would have heard this sort of thing. So it's something which, you know, is, is kind of relatable, but it's also just, it's very transparent, you know, what he's, where, how he's going to, to study uh, Russia and the Russian Revolution. He takes us on a journey, which um, uh, mm -hmm. in the novel, he's the protagonist, he's the hero, uh, he's the discovering, hero. finding yeah. stuff. And he's taking us on the journey of discovery with him, which is what I like about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and writes so well. I mean, a beautiful write. And you know, the thing that's so interesting, I mean, you know, the things you might not know, like names of philosophers, but he is, you know, the search for clarity. Is that, what's the title of the chapter again? Search for clarity. What's, what is it? A quest. A, a quest, quest for, for clarity. clarity. Yeah, yeah. And in the quest for clarity, he does not write in an unclear way. He writes very clear. And it even gets clearer as you go further, you know? So, I mean, it's almost like you say, I mean, he has to know all of this thing, all of this stuff, all of this knowledge. But at the same time, he writes so well, he's so careful to write he, in a way that people will understand. He's giving us the foundation. Yeah. Uh -huh. He's really giving us the foundation uh, on which uh, for us to build our understanding of what he discovered. Yeah. And that's what I see the first chapter as. Yes. Uh, basically giving us that foundation, yeah. letting us know that he has collected all of this knowledge, all of this truth, and now he's going to apply it to Russia. And then he, he, he makes it clear that I had to leave the university yeah. if the work that I intended to do and to find solutions uh, was to happen. I left the university and I go to the NAACP and I set up a journal, a popular journal. Uh, and then I'm at this, uh, uh, a year after the founding of the NAACP, I'm at this international conference of uh, uh, a, a race conference in, in England where I meet people from the colonial world. But then the war interrupts his travel, right? World War I. But then after the war, he in uh, 19... Was it 19? 1919, yeah, the first Pan-African Conference, Congress, 1919, I'm sorry. And so then he has two more before he arrives in Russia. And he has all of this experience, actual experience and struggle behind him. And then he's in Russia. Uh, so he has this reservoir of learning and experience that creates a lens of judgment and evaluation. And then as Joe said, uh, flesh of the flesh and blood of the blood of the oppressed. So I'm looking at this from the epistemic or epistemological standpoint of the oppressed and what does the Russian Revolution mean for the oppressed of the world? Huge, huge setup, beautifully set up. Mm -hmm. 
that reminds me of um, Criteria of Negro Art. Oh boy. Which and is we published have... in the same year that he goes to Russia, 1926. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've just been thinking about uh, the novel form, of course. <laughs> and, you know, it's um, as uh, Catherine just put it, he envisions himself as a protagonist. Yes. And um, that is, and, you know, the quest. The keyword in this yeah. Yeah. search for clarity is a quest for clarity, and quest is always associated with the romance, of course, the romance tradition, which goes back to the ancient world. But you have the medieval romance and so on. But then again, Du Bois is writing against the medieval romance, where you have the foundations of white literature go back to the Grail legend, you know, um, this idea of the knight and the lady and all of that. Um, and so, but at the same time, you have this enormous Greco-Roman tradition that Du Bois inherits, you know, he teaches Greek and Latin. Um, so he knows all of the tropes of Greek and classical literature. And um, in addition to sans like Sanskrit and so on, other languages, African uh, literature, it's, um, it's, you know, this romance thing is so important to him in Criteria of Negro Art. That's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. <laughs> to say, because he's trying to, the, it's not hey, in, you know. Yeah, hey, Divya, say that one more time because she froze up. Oh, excuse me. Um, he says something like the stuff of romance is in the, in the in the history, in the struggle of the dark uh, peoples of the world, to regain control of history, to regain control of their freedom, um, because they are free, they have always been free, and they have always been a part of humanity, and that broader arc, um, taking us back to Egypt, to Greece to Ethiopia, to Rome, you know, that's what that's about. It's about this, it, uh, for me, like from a literary perspective, mm -hmm. it's about the attempt to redefine the romance um, to begin, as he says, this great work of the creation of beauty and the preservation of beauty, of the realization of beauty Well, if I might say, it's, yeah. it's incredible. Oh, yeah. I, I just so you know, Catherine and I have a good friend named Wardell O'Connor, who taught uh, Latin and French. And I hope Wardell is listening, because he is very interested in the novel and the romance form. So if you could say more, Divya, be very uh, helpful to him and a bit, um, he, he considers, since it's a Saturday free school, he considers himself a seventh day Adventist because <laughs> they worship on Saturday. <laughs> but, 
Well, I'll just read a quote, if you don't mind, from the essay itself, which connects to this idea of the quest. And then you will have to go to Quest of the Silver Fleece, which yeah. is, uh, I mean, that's a whole new thing. I, you know, I'm just amazed by it and what it does with relationships between men and women um, in the failure of white literature's capacity to imagine through the 19th century novel to the 18th century novel and so forth. Um, you know, because all they can do is create these stock figures, as you see in Uncle Tom's Cabin, or, you know, abolitionist literature from the white perspective, though well-meaning, you have the sentimentalism. And um, thereafter, Du Bois is saying, you know, Black people have all the contradictions of humanity, as all people. They struggle with the same feelings. You know, it's not just, it's not even just, ultimately, I think he says in criteria of Negro art, similar to what Baldwin says, which is that, um, you know, white literature suffers because you don't see our humanity, because you don't see, you don't see yourself. And how can you create fiction that is about the human condition when you excise a part of yourself, right? Like, so anyway, he says, which, this is the part that I'll read for Wardell. Um, I hope he's doing well. Um, Have you heard the story of the conquest of German East Africa? Listen to the untold tale. There were 40,000 black men and 4,000 white men who talked German. There were 20,000 black men and 12,000 white men who talked English. There were 10,000 black men and 400 white men who talked French. In Africa then, where the mountains of the moon raised their white and snow-capped heads into the mouth of the tropic sun, where Nile and Congo rise, and the great lakes swim. These men fought. They struggled on mountain hill and valley, in river, lake, and swamp, until in masses they sickened, crawled, and died, until the 4,000 white Germans had become mostly bleached bones, until nearly all the 12,000 white Englishmen had returned to South Africa, and the 400 Frenchmen to Belgium and heaven all except a mere handful of the white men died, but thousands of black men from East, West and South Africa, from Nigeria and the Valley of the Nile, from the West Indies, still struggled, fought and died. For four years, they fought and won and lost German East Africa. And all you hear about is that England and Belgium conquered German Africa for the allies. Such is the true and stirring stuff of what romance is born. And from this stuff comes stirrings of men who are beginning to remember that this kind of material is theirs and this vital life of their own kind is beckoning them on. The question comes next, and I'll stop in a minute, comes next as to the interpretation of these new stirrings, of this new spirit, of what is the colored artist capable, capable 
we have had on the part of both colored and white people singular unanimity of judgment in the past. Colored people have said this work must be inferior because it comes from colored people. White people have said it is inferior because it is done by colored people. But today there is coming to both the realization that the work of the black man is not always inferior. Interesting stories come to us. A professor in the University of Chicago read to a class that had studied literature, a passage of poetry and asked them to guess the author. They guessed a goodly company from Shelley and Robert Browning to Tennyson and Macefield. The author was County Cullen. Or again, <laughs> the English critic John Drinkwater went down a Southern seminary, one of the sort which finishes young white women of the South. The students sat with their wooden faces while he tried to get some response out of them. Finally, he said, name me some of your Southern poets. They hesitated. He said, finally, I'll start out with your best. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I liked the part, um, going back to the, Jackie, it's something about the, uh, organ, or, or the industrial organization, um, when um, Du Bois was talking about, you know, the shifting of an, the industrial organization um, of the world. And when you talked about Lenin, um, or he, he, I mean, you know, uh, putting the Negro problem as a, a pro, as a problem, as you said, as a problem, as a world problem of freedom, it reminds me of um, Malcolm X's um, tour, or like in maybe in 64, 65, when he was talking about, um, you, know, you know, it's not a civil rights problem. The Negro problem is not a civil rights problem, but it's a human rights problem. And this human rights problem must be taken to the UN. And, um, and, in, and in that similar vein of like Robeson, you know, charging the United States of, genoc of genocide. And I feel like, you know, the, this, this charge of genocide and, you know, taking this problem to the, uh, the UN is a, a sort of a move in a similar fashion toward a, 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 a change in the in industrial organization of the world because the industrial organization is, um, is based off the exploitation and the genocide of black people, you know. Um, and so to charge um, the United States with genocide is to, is to um, you know, uh, perpetuate that shift of world organization. Um, and to or, or and to move it once again and to push toward a value of human life uh, mm -hmm. and of human dignity. That's so very interesting what you're saying, Jay, that even the human rights question is a question of the organization of the world economy. Mm -hmm. Because how can the colonized and oppressed ever realize full human rights under a world organization of economic life, which is predicated upon their oppression. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I, I wanna get back to this thing of, of Catherine and Divya, this literary, this, you know, because the literary becomes not just the sentimental, but it becomes a way of, um, of, of clarifying. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's not language for the sake of language, you know? Um, yeah, I, I find that very fascinating that he is the protagonist in 
this journey that he's taking us on. I find, yeah. I uh, can bring in some comments. Uh, Megna writes, Du Bois's intellectual integrity also shows how McCarthyism impoverished the ability of white American intellectuals to search for the truth. At some point, they gave up their fealty to the truth, which would have led them to look objectively and soberly at the accomplishments of the Soviet Union and the world communist movement in exchange for denouncing it to get a career in academia. This continues today. It is so beautiful to hear of Du Bois's path and an example for all young people to follow. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, it is the example. Jeremiah, right. Yes. Can I just say something on that? She's absolutely sure. right. Because we're in the throes of another kind of McCarthyism, not the same, but the so-called left is now uh, the vehicle, the mechanism for this kind of shutdown without objective critique. I mean, you know, this left today would have reject, would reject Du Bois if he reappeared, you know, because uh, uh, they support uh, a consensus, a, an enforced consensus on everything. You have to accept their ideas, you have to accept their strategies, you have to accept the people that they say are progressive, their progressivism. Um, they wouldn't accept Du Bois. Well, they don't accept Du Bois, but even if he reappeared, they would reject him. They would probably cancel him. Um, so we are in a new McCarthyism, uh, a worse McCarthyism. The universities, there's no hiding place in these universities. Um, back in the days, well, go back to the 60s and 70s. Everybody felt the you could go to the university, get a free hall. You know, students would, you know, petition and you get an auditorium and no matter whose views you would be heard, but uh, they've shut it down. Um, don't even think about a PhD. And even if you get one, you might not get a job uh, because they're, you know, digital learning and, uh, and so on. Uh, this, this is the worst of times um, for an honest intellectual. Yeah, I guess we could also add to that. McCarthyism has very much impoverished American literature because the fact that this kind of literary uh, standard was erased, I mean, that's why so much of post-McCarthyist uh, literature is you know, so terrible. Some of it is unreadable and oh, yeah. kind of irrelevant. And uh, yeah. as we've discussed, works like this are not just for that time but for our time as well and and you know like we have discovered you know these great novels by du bois the quest of the silver fleece i think that was 1909 his first novel and uh, uh the role of Z zora uh and uh who was her uh partner her husband what's his name now bless Bless. Huh? Bless. Yeah. Bless. Oh. Like in Blessed. Yeah. yeah. Zora but and you know, Blessed. Go, go ahead, man. <laughs> no, no. Uh, 
you know, um, that story, I'm still like, I'm still finishing it. Um, but it's, you know, just my initial read through is like, you know, he shows just, um, the fallacy of, um, this, I mean, he shows like this whole ideal behind the romance is the purity of the woman. And of course, at the center of the story is this um, wrenching episode where Zora, you know, has this exchange with Bless um, where he just like he can't quite grasp that, you know, she had to, she was forced to be with the master. And there's this like, I don't even know, I can't even really understand it fully, but it's like all of these complications of the literariness of the romance, which depends, and this is the white romance now, that depends on the purity of the ideal of the white woman around which the romance centers in the Western tradition. Um, and, you know, you see the same thing happening in E.M. Forster's Passage to India, right? Like at the center of it is this woman who goes to India and, um, you know, she has an affair with this, I think, Muslim doctor. And like they go off into the caves to explore. And like, you know, at the end of it, she accuses him of rape. But on, on the reverse side, you see the same complication um, here by Du Bois of that idea of purity um, because ultimately Zora you know he shows how complicated that can be you know um, how do how, like how do men and women judge each other within the color line and within the um, you know within the within the veil within the veil yeah. within the veil and you know with all of the pressures that are mounting on them how do they break and why mm -hmm. and um how their love still persists and i've not finished the novel so i can't fully give you a reading but but one thing that the silver fleece is this and it is the from greek mythology but the yes. silver fleece uh, and Zora is the main figure. She's the one pushing, is a seed, a cotton seed that will be uh, immune from disease, but will produce the special kind of cotton. And they're going to do this on the worst land, but they fail. So, you know, which is, you know, but yeah, I. See, I, I, the thing that um, is so uh, impressive is how he brings that literary sensibility to telling this story of Russia and the Cold War. And I guess when we get to the part where I think it's chapter two, where he deals with Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a character study based upon almost a quest for the silver fleece kind of idea, a character study of three leaders of the Russian revolution, but 
where the character question, the moral question, the higher issues become central to determining their behavior within the revolution. It, it's, it's both a, you know, a psychological study, but it's informed by a literary sensibility. Like Catherine said, this, this drama, uh, and uh, it's not, and as, as you know, in, in the first chapter, he rejects um, Bushnell Hart, Albert Bushnell Hart, the collector of facts. You know, um, I know in my own sociological studies, there are sociologists that have, you know, all of these file cabinets with this fact, the other fact, the other, you know, people who can go into archives and collect facts, 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 but do not understand the essence of history, the essence of humanity. And he, this is where the literary, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is a romantic in the, not in the sense of romantic love, so to speak, but a romantic in the sense of, of what, what he calls law and chance. The reality of the unpredictable uh, and uh, just all of that is going on. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, Doc, I think, I think this first chapter, it's, I also really enjoyed, you know, us reading it together because the way that Du Bois constructs, reconstructs this history and like Jahan, you had mentioned this intellectual biography of life, it's also artful, uh, but then it's also, it's also very egoless. Um, and I think this, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Well, you know, like it's, he's writing him about himself, but not in a self-aggrandizing way. It's rather with the spirit of um, extracting the truth, like a balanced truth from everything that he is, um, everything that he has gone through and um, the experiences that he's had. And I liked, I liked the way that he wrote about, um, you know, like he mentioned having the opportunity to study um, like the seventh ward when he was at the University of Pennsylvania. And then also um, at the end when he talks about how um, he, he didn't understand Russia, but he wanted to learn what he could learn from Russia. And he didn't want his visit to be guided by a desire for a particular conclusion, but rather, um, you know, to learn honestly and truthfully. And I think, you know, like, I think that that distance and that, like that ability to be so, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like equanimous and so, you know, so clear eyed about this quest for clarity and this quest for the truth that um, gave him the ability to see so broad and to be so, you know, prophetic in what he was um, seeing in the world. And yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a really beautiful reminder of, you know, how, how, how poetic and artful uh, and spiritual, you know, this, this quest for clarity is. You, you know, and the other thing, his capacity to be open to something that's so radically new, where the Western world, the Western intellectuals, the Western journalists were condemning it. And, and you know, of course, 
when they condemn it, that gives him reason to look into it, of course, you know. But something so radically new that he had previously not taken a position on, he'd remain neutral, you know, the white working class, how do we know that they will, you know, stand up for the oppressed and, you know, his, his interlocutor, his informant is Claude McKay, a poet, uh, uh, later a novelist and member of the Harlem Renaissance and a communist. He goes there, he's part of the Communist International, the first meetings of, of communist parties from around the world to support the Russian revolution. And, and so uh, first Claude had, Claude McKay had criticized Du Bois. You know, why are you standing on the sideline? And then, you know, Du Bois has that long part where he, in the crisis says that, you know, why he, he was uh, not taking a position. Um, but one thing is very clear. He didn't take a position against the four. He seemed to be a little bit more favorable towards it, but not, um, you know, just completely uh, taking a position yet. And so he goes there, which by the way, was not uh, a minor thing. I mean, you're going into the midst of a country that just came out of a, a bloody civil war and a bloody occupation of about 14 countries. So uh, it's not like you're going to uh, Paris or London and gonna stay in a fine hotel. And then he travels by train around Russia, he goes to the Caucasus uh, and he sees and he reflects. Uh, and then he reads reports. And I think in chapter two, he talks about a report done by uh, uh, a British trade union delegation, uh, which talked about the achievement. And, you know, anybody that's ever been in a newly liberated or new revolutionary situation, uh, it's not something you could take lightly because, you know, it's not often it's not safe. You have opposing sides, uh, you know, uh, you know, often a revolution is an occasion for criminal and lumpen proletariat elements to go crazy and start, you know, robbing and, and looting and shit. But he goes there and he goes there as a social scientist with a partisanship to the oppressed. It's, I, and then he, and then he has all of this, this literary capacity to see history as a drama and not as an accumulation of facts. Uh, some more comments. Uh, Jeremiah writes, something that's very striking about Du Bois is his humility and honesty in presenting his intellectual endeavors. Du Bois makes clear that he's looking at Russia from the standpoint of seeking knowledge that can contribute to the uplift of black folk in America, as Alice is saying. This differs from white intellectuals and Western media, which looked at Russia from the standpoint of the white American elite and sympathy for the czarist regime, but did not have integrity to admit their own intellectual bias and allegiances. Instead, they hid behind claims of objectivity or knowledge without any connection to social issues and dynamics. 
poignantly, Du Bois's epistemological framework gives him the clarity to actually assess the Soviet Union with much greater uh, objectivity than any of the white intellectuals or propagandists who smeared the Soviet experiment, as Meghna said. Uh, Caleb writes, I'm astounded by Du Bois's breadth of knowledge in his pursuit of truth, as he doesn't confine himself to a single field or method. He draws from philosophy, history, and the social sciences, but also from art, especially literature. I see it in the way he writes. It's much more poetic than a mechanical academic text. This conversation has really made me think that Du Bois as an intellectual was synthesizing science and art in his search for truth, much like many other thinkers before him that saw science and art as inseparable pursuits. Uh, Emily writes, uh, many young people in the US today, like those I met at college, who aspire to be radicals or revolutionaries, find the Russian Revolution, Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky through Marx or go directly to studying the Russian Revolution. I think it's more important for young Americans to study and know the Russian Revolution through Du Bois first. I believe it significantly affects how we approach and understand struggle, revolution, and unity. Um, Emily writes, many young, oh, sorry, no, Nuri writes, despite the weaknesses of each of the professors Du Bois met at Harvard, he's able to take the best of what each of them have to offer in terms of method to synthesize into his ideal of a social science or knowledge to be used to lift up the peoples of the world. As Nandita was saying, even though they were in the classical European tradition, Du Bois has the kind of uh, openness of mind and generosity to not just reject that system of thought out of hand, but to consider what it might have to offer despite its limits. It also reminds me of the Lenin lectures on philosophy, which engaged openly with ideas that have shaped the world, spanning both Europe and the black radical tradition, yeah. referring to the Lenin lectures that free school did this past spring. However, I think today in academia, there is really very little left of integrity, sincerity, rigor, or creativity in thought which means that anyone seeking objective intellectual depth, let alone truth for human uplift, will not find it in the university anymore, which is another reason why free school is so significant. You know, and, you know, it, you know, I don't want to sound like we're beating our own drum, but in, in most ways, the university has failed. Okay, can I just tell a little story? There's a, a, a young junior professor, black woman at the University of Pennsylvania. And she, teach, she teaches methodology. And if you go around universities in social science where every social science had its own methodology, its method of arriving at truth or something close to it. Well, you know, under the pressure of postmodernism, methodology has literally been um, taken out of curricula. People do not study method. Um, as you know, I, I did sociology, even though I didn't like it, like the way it was taught. I mean, you were you knew that there were methods of research, qualitative research, quantitative research, and so on. Um, and, uh, 
And a sociologist, in a lot of ways, was expected to be a researcher. Uh, but today, it is more about, quote, discourse than about discovery. And um, it's, and so the university has betrayed humanity, uh, betrayed society, and really betrayed young people and really their families who are paying all this money for them to go to these places. Uh, this, is a, this is a crisis of, um, like I think Nanitha mentioned, crisis of civilization because the, the civilization has given up the principal institutions of, of civilization have given up on knowledge and truth. And that's what Du Bois represents, the counterpole to that, the alternative to that pessimism, to that cynicism, to that negativity that most people come out of a university feeling or the hostility in the university. I mean, you know, why is a grown woman, a man so hostile towards a young student or views that they might not share? It's, it's, um, it is indicative of something very profound in terms of the crisis of a Western civilization. Tony, I would add that it's uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, actually more dogmatic and so uh, oh. Michelle Nunditha and I had a conversation yesterday uh, about what is going on in the university. And uh, the university is actually very intent on shaping the minds of young people and how they gather information and how they view that information. And they uh, actually uh, then through your coursework or through the coursework of youth, uh, even in terms of uh, urban planning. A lot of young people now at the University of Penn, I can't speak for Temple, take courses in urban planning. And somehow or other, the notion of environment and urban planning gets uh, pieced into their course of study, but from a perspective of, of the urbanists. Uh, and so uh, Michelle can better explain what her experience was with that uh, than I, because she's the one that had the experience. None of them didn't have the experience. Thank God, none of them. <laughs> but Michelle, you want to explain that? More on, could you say more on what, what aspect of it in particular? Oh, it wasn't you, Michelle. It was Emily that was, was it? Yeah, that's why. But I mean, I have gone to Penn, so I would know. Oh, okay. So Emily talked about, so she's in biology. And she talked about a course she had to take or a course that they uh, provided for her because you had to take so many courses. I guess uh, when I went to school, you had to take two years of uh, liberal arts and humanities, all right? And then you went into your major. And I guess now at Penn, you had to take so many courses non-related to your major. But these courses tend to be related to setting you up with a mindset as to how to view human interaction, how humans live. Uh, in fact, Emily says that with the course she took, I can't remember the name of it. She says he, she hates the Bicycle Coalition to this day because of the way that they enforced or imposed this notion about how humans need to live in the urban environment. And I guess the rural area, we just will never live in there again. But, but 
she's a biologist, yet she had to take that kind of course. And I don't think it's just limited to Emily. I think it may be in all areas where they are making young people take courses to help to actually shape their perspective on how they view humans, uh, how they view humanity, how humanity is supposed to live, how humanity is supposed to think. And maybe that's the new methodology, Tony. Yeah, actually, when, when I was at Penn, it, it took me a few years to settle on what um, I actually wanted to study. So I began uh, by wanting to be um, a biology or chemistry major, and then I kind of switched to economics. And then um, and then I thought of going to history or Asian American studies, but then I finally landed in statistics. But it actually took me a few years to settle down. And so in the first few years, I, I took a wide uh, array of um, courses. And, and you know, as Penn is split into four different schools and, and I was taking courses in the different schools and, um, and I was so shocked because I thought it would be a clarifying process or I thought it would be a broadening process, but overwhelmingly I found it to be um, a very confusing process and so different from what Du Bois described where, um, I mean, I, I, a lot of this is also to the credit of Du Bois, but he was able to go through his courses um, meet different strands of thinking and then, you know, draw the best of them um, and synthesize them with what he, you know, what else he knew. Uh, but I, 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 I feel that, you know, when I went to different disciplines, this is, that was what I expected. Like that broadening, um, that broadening of a framework for understanding the world. But instead, um, Instead, I found I, I found it very, very dissettling, like unsettling, and um, I don't know exactly why it is, but um, you know, regarding what you shared about Emily's academic experience, I I do feel that yeah, part of it is all of these courses, all of these different disciplines, at an institution like Penn, say the same thing about humanity, which is that you should not, you should not regard it. Um, seriously like you should not think about the possibility of uplift of uplifting humanity like you shouldn't adopt the world view of um like the masses of people and uh, it's it's just reinforced in subtle ways i mean from from biology to you know the humanities um even to like computer science so it's this a whole thing of what i call now urbanology that comes with the transplants that you talk about. Mm. So these are the <laughs> these are the young undergraduates at Penn. They go to Penn, and and somehow or other the notion of urbanology, whatever that is, I, I I created a name for it because they believe it as a philosophy. It is now a philosophy. It has reached to that height as a philosophy, so that when young people come to Penn. You know, part of the mission of Penn apparently is to further gentrification. So when young people come in the Penn, they, I think, get this uh, one or some of these courses that actually uh, get young people to, to become urbanists or become uh, addicted to or incited by the, the, the notion, the notion of, of urbanology. And so they think building tall buildings and apartment living is better than 
uh, owning homes. Uh, and then they bring in the ecological piece to it saying, well, uh, if you live in an apartment building, you emit less CO2. Uh, and then if you, and we're gonna build, oh yes, Tony, it is unbelievable. And we're gonna build these uh, apartment buildings close to um, uh, mass transit because these people moving in won't want any cars. They're going to get on mass transit. And, uh, and now we're going to, according to Emily, we're gonna put on each floor some sort of method in which uh, they can, the, the young people or the people living in these buildings could create a community. So you'll have a community on each floor. And it gets more bizarre, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically, but this is how they are indoctrinating at Penn. I can't talk about any other school, you know, but based on Emily's experience, and there was a, uh, an, another young man, um, Michelle, I think I met with you who took a course in, in, urban, uh, in urban planning, all mm -hmm. right? And he talked mm -hmm. about the same kind of situation when they talk about urban planning. It is not about home ownership. Uh, it's not about affordability. Uh, actually, it pits homeowners and uh, renters against each other. And uh, they actually tell young people indirectly and subliminally, this is how humanity is going to move forward uh, in terms of how humanity will live, how it will interact, but really not interact, and how it will um, save the planet potentially. Yeah, but all of this is, once again, we're back to the capitalist reset, you know, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, uh, the digitizing, of human relationships, where the human is taken out of human relationships and everything is mediated by uh, uh, digital processes. Um, what you know, what you can think. This guy, Elon Musk, you know, the so-called genius of all time, who is, you know, behind electric cars and spaceships to Mars and everything else, he's saying that human beings are gonna to have to learn how to merge with machines. Now, what does that mean? Do, so the machines will determine the nature of human relationships. Apropos Du Bois's a study of the Russian Revolution. Du Bois saw it as a great human achievement for Elon Musk and uh, Klaus Schwab, I think Klaus Schwab and those people, humanity has reached its limit. Humanity cannot go any further. It is now we're entering the epoch of smart machines. Um, that all human values will have to be evaluated on whether or not they can contribute to this next stage where the world will be run by machines, smart machines, robots, and um, and of course, this involves the what they call the cyborg or the transhuman. Um, 
Yeah. And this, you get a, a place like the University of Pennsylvania. That's why the curriculum is being uh, 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 eviscerated. All, all of the human values, literature, art, uh, discourse, of course, Du Bois, uh, because human values are no longer central in a world of a capitalist reset, of a fourth industrial revolution, of the digitizing of human relationships, and especially relationships of knowledge production. What Du Bois talked about, like you said, with those professors, uh, Albert Bushnell Hart, William James, what did he say? They became my friends. We trusted one another. They, they saw me as a colleague, albeit a junior one. Uh, oh, you're not gonna have that anymore. You don't need that anymore. You know, uh, all of this will be digitized and hundreds of students will be taught by a lecture that was um, uh, uh, recorded five years ago. We'll update it maybe uh, every five years, but you'll not have a professor. Knowledge will not be a human uh, process. Uh, Emily wrote a comment, uh, I think in response to what Catherine was mentioning, she writes, I was taught residences are a waste of space and inefficient and that we should reduce streets so we can replace cars with bikes and futuristic buses like Copenhagen. My professors really love Copenhagen. <laughs> Actually, that's something I've heard as well. I, I, when I went to college too, uh, everybody was talking about Copenhagen, study abroad in Copenhagen, futurist Copenhagen. Oh, they, I think they burn their trash or something and use it to, to heat their buildings. You know, it's the perfect place. Um, but I guess the first condition is the city has to look like Copenhagen. The people have to look like the people of Copenhagen first. Well, <laughs> interesting. But <laughs> um, some more comments. Uh, Kathy writes, continuing our rich discussion on imagining possibilities for unity and this conversation about literature, it moves me greatly that Du Bois's search for the truth actually brings him closer to the working peoples around the globe much like Lenin's ability to link the Russian Revolution to the world's masses. I'm inspired by Du Bois's example of writing a fictional novel like Dark Princess, a story about intercivilizational unity and the romance between black worker Matthew and Indian princess Kaltilia immediately after his 1926 visit to Russia. Kaltilia is attuned to the unique position of black Americans as the world's revolutionary vanguard because of her visit to the Soviet Union. It's a lot for us young people whose imagination has been so confined by the education we've been given and postmodern art and literature of today's time to learn from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Max writes, one of the things that is clear in the first chapter is Du Bois's urge to get closer to the masses of the world and in the same vein, get closer to the truth. He travels the world to Western and Eastern Europe, to the colonies of the Caribbean, to the nations of Africa, and finally to Russia and Asia, while always framing what he sees and discovers from the context of Afro-America and its relevance to the liberation of all the darkest peoples of the world. He's able to observe the unique contradictions that are present in these places, 
but also the immense hope that all people possess to transform the world for the better. This great hope and belief in people that Du Bois carries is something that is especially important to remember in today's times amidst the current crisis in the U.S., where many have become so nihilistic and distrustful. Mm-hmm. Distrustful. Yeah. Um, Vincent writes, there is something cyclical about our time now, 30 years ago after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when many of the questions Du Bois is asking and addressing in Russia and America have returned. Despite, despite the efforts of the academy and the left to cast today's problems as totally new, because they are now ostensibly digital, transhuman, and postmodern. The issues Du Bois raises from the perspective of an old school liberal education and an epistemology of the oppressed cannot be ignored. Without understanding Du Bois, we cannot understand that many of the problems we face today are more perennial in nature than we would like to think. I think a cyclical approach to knowledge and revolutionary development could also provide an alternative pathway for the West and Western humanity in crisis. While the tech capitalists want only to move forward with a great reset, pushing the West into deep, uh, pushing the West deeper into a collapsing civilization. Du Bois, Sonny Rollins and Henry Winston provide a totally different perspective on knowledge and progress that doesn't necessarily ask us to go forward or backward for that matter, but instead starts from the standpoint of cycles and cyclical development. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I had a comment about the great, the great reset and the ideology behind it, uh, you know, being Malthusianism. Um, it's sort of uh, the idea behind a lot of Western environmental efforts where the problem is that the earth is beautiful and that there are humans on the earth, you know, poisoning the earth. And the problem in the equation is the humans. And to solve this problem, uh, you know, the people driving the Great Reset or want to remove humans from the problem or in education, removing the relationship between a professor and a student is, a, you know, dystopian nightmare. But this is considered the future of education to make it more accessible for everyone around the world. Um, and that's sort of the motivating idea behind the World uh, Wildlife uh, Foundation, the WWF, that there's nature and it's out there. And uh, you know the problem is we need to remove humans from that nature. But the problem with that perspective is there were humans living in balance in that nature. You know, we could think of Native Americans or you know, we could think of uh, indigenous Asians and Africans. And, uh, you know, the real solution that we're discussing to these problems is, you know, solving them on a human level or solving them with human tools rather than exiting that equation. Yeah. You know, that's why I, I you know, you just like, um, you know, the, the first principle and a principle of unity was humanity. Well, how often do you hear that? Let's start with humanity. Um, 
In fact, it's the, like Elon Musk. Let's start with the machine. We have that humanity is the source of all of our problems. So let's eliminate humanity as much as possible. Um, I think, you know, I think as we think about the free school, more than anything else over these years, we have come to conclude that a fight for humanity, you know, is uppermost in the fight to save the world and to save, uh, and for revolution. I mean, uh, I don't know how to, how that, that point gets uh, put on the agenda of struggle. You know, uh, yeah, this is, I think we're, I think the crisis might be even deeper than we have imagined uh, because the civilizational crisis is, is a crisis of quote, science and technology against humanity. Uh, and um, I know there are people, um, what's the woman's name that used to come to free school? Uh, Allison, Allison uh, McDowell and the work that she does and people in other parts of the world, Corey Morningstar, who are saying the whole Green New Deal is a, is a fraud and a, a farce and a way for, is a part of the capitalist reset. And uh, Klaus Schwab said the same thing. He even went so far as to say, this uh, current pandemic is a part of a, uh, we, we can use it in a capitalist reset mode. Uh, hmm. Another comment from Emil, he writes, this reverence to machines seems like a natural development from a profit oppression centered ideology like whiteness. Uh, earlier when we we're having the conversation about science, he had a comment, uh, maybe I can bring it in because we're talking about science again now he says, this conversation makes me think of the Iranian scientists who risked their lives for the safety of their people. The recently assassinated nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh is now seen as a hero and martyr in Iran. Compare that to the disdain and distrust much of the scientific community in America has towards their own citizens and the people's distrust, which is returned in kind. Yeah. Where the people don't trust science, they don't trust knowledge, you know, because they have seen its misuses and they don't trust universities and they don't like university professors. I mean, that might be news to a lot of university professors who think that they are universally loved. In fact, they're probably universally disliked. I mean, I'm not even talking about among their students, but uh, in the world in general, people don't like universities and they don't like university administrators they don't like university professors and they don't know what scientists do. Uh, it's <laughs> I think it goes back to the enlightenment problem of, mm -hmm. um, well, this question of man, machine and animal really, because of course the, the, an animal. An animal, uh-huh. Because you know, the whole thing is, oh, animal studies, <laughs> cyborg studies, you know, but 
the thing is we are animals of course and so part of nature mm -hmm. but then again this comes up against the problem of science which is also a problem of i think all uh epistemologies whether we're talking capitalist or otherwise mm -hmm. um it's the question of creation itself which then takes us back to religion uh because if man is an animal but also more than an animal because why would religion exist otherwise um because of this sense that we have i mean depending on what you believe you know either you've been on this earth before as the doctrine of transmigration of souls holds or or you you know um go to heaven and so on i mean however you think of the afterlife but i think with the vedanta that's this and there is a scientific element to it it says that nature exists for the education of the soul meaning like we are not bound to, or you know we can be bound to nature you know when we do things like eat when we depend on nature for food when we depend on other animals you know domesticate them so on um but the real the, the problem of the environment is a really a problem of uh like do you think that you as a human being are doing all of this making the planets go around making climate change are you really you know are you the only one that makes the ice age happen you know isn't there a greater force that does this and i'm not trying to say that we don't have a role in shaping the environment we certainly do but it just seems a bit um impoverished to suggest that well wasn't the weren't the ice ages climate change you know how how did the native americans come across the bering strait and then it melted you know we i mean it's like when you look at history and and geology in the broader scheme of things which du bois actually also does in the world in africa it's oh, it goes back to the beginning of the universe mm -hmm. you know um and so there's archaeology there's geology there's you know um all sorts of sciences which ultimately you know the universe is finite we know this it had you know it was created at a certain point and nature is finite but something in us is also not finite right for what it's worth Well, Joe, you know, it's getting about that yeah. time. <laughs> right. we're, done, we're done with comments. So uh, we're yeah. done with comments. Uh, would you all mind if we went on to chapter two next week? And everybody can get it now. Uh, we could do chapter two. And if there's any catastrophic events between now and then, I guess we'll have to discuss that too. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
All right. Exactly. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much, Johan. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Bye. -bye.